You read the Bible, Greg. You talking to me? I'm a long sample. Keep up. Wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Uh, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. So what you want? Jesus freaking. I got a bad feeling about this. King Kong ain't got shit on me! Do I really look like a guy with a plan? Each and every man under my command owes me 100 net scouts. <laughs> Start to see pictures, eh? Oh, wow. Thank you for that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Film and Loathing Podcast for Tuesday, August 6, 2019. This is episode number 37, and I'm Jake. I'm Chris. And I'm Zach. Coming up today, we've got a review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood after a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, we'll also be talking about some things that we watched and then whatever comes up, whatever else comes up along the way. Since we've got a special guest with us today, joining us again, Mr. Andrew Clark. Thank you for coming back. Howdy. So, how's it been since the last time you were on? You know, just every day I'm missing being on this podcast. But yeah, no, it's been cool. I'm, I'm glad, I'm honored to be asked to be on this one because obviously, you know, a new Tarantino movie that's a, you know, a big event in anyone's movie going, watching. And so, we're only getting one more. Huh? And we're only getting one more. Allegedly. Yeah, I think we'll. I mean, is is the Star Trek one supposed to be the tenth? Uh, I don't think he's confirmed or denied that it would be the tenth. Okay. Um, but no, you're right, Andrew. Anytime a Tarantino film comes out is definitely big news. And I feel like especially for this year, it's bigger news since I don't know exactly your thoughts on the film of 2019, and we'll di- we'll dig into it. But I haven't exactly been the biggest fan. This has been a slow year. So far, at films to be completely transparent. Uh, the first half of the year, I didn't have a car, and so I missed a lot of films I was very excited about seeing during theater re- theater releases, such as High Life, which was one of my most you know anticipated of the year. And so there's quite a few that I still need to catch up on. But so far, you know, the last movie I saw in theaters before uh, before Hollywood this year was Godzilla, and you know that was. Uh, Ugh. A letdown, you know, even when, even with, you know, a film that typically never can let me down, you know, I don't know about everyone else, but I was beyond excited when Criterion announced that Spine 1000 would be the Godzilla box set, but, but when the best, mo- the best movie theater experience so far has been Godzilla, there's some problems. That's a big problem. I don't I, know. Okay. I'm real, I'm really bummed like for you, Andrew, that you, I'm really bummed for you that you missed High Life in theaters. Yeah, that was really disappointing to me because, you know, Claire Denis has always definitely been one of my favorites. White Material is, uh, you know, definitely a top 10 of mine. So I was really excited for High Life. But, you know, it's on Amazon now. So I'm definitely going to catch it sometime soon when I can have, you know, the whole house to myself and I can really just very personally digest it. Is it, uh, oh, you're going to want to get nice and personal for the fuck box. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait. <clears throat> oh, is so is it streaming on Amazon Prime right now? Yep. I don't think oh. it's free yet, like most H24 
Found the spike. Oh, you, you can just run. Okay, I got you. You guys haven't put that baby up on Baby Blue yet. <laughs> we've, we've already determined that Jeff Bezos is listening in on this, so. He probably is. He probably is. Oh, he definitely is. He's getting the divorce. He's got a lot of time on his hands. <laughs> well, what have you guys been up to? How has your week's been? It's been a while since we've all talked. Getting my teeth did, man. Oh, yeah. How's that going? Are they all fucked? Uh, I've got two more cavities left to fill. The dentist said, though, I have the biggest tooth he has ever seen. Nice. My, That's not the least bit surprising fact about you. My tooth <laughs> is, and I, I say this um, as a quotation, a quote-unquote anomaly. Okay, really? Because basically what he said, and this is using dental terms here, I have um, a cusp right on my buckle of my right back molar, which means take half of my tooth and then add it on to my already existing tooth. So I basically have like a full mouth of teeth plus a half a tooth. Are you worried about him Whoa. stealing it? Stealing it? Him <laughs> knocking me out and just like yanking it out of my head? Yeah, what if your mouth is like his Moby Dick? And you know, this is the, oh, he said man. it's the biggest tooth. I was kind of like, I was kind of like hoping somebody would be like, can we like bring this up at our next conference or something? <laughs> I was kind of. He said it was the first one he's ever saw, which was kind of exciting. Are, they, are you hoping to be a part of like a speech, like a talk at Mass General or something? I want my tooth to be published. Is all I'm saying. I think this is the beginning of the human centipede. <laughs> Guys, like, wow, that tooth would really look good lashed onto somebody's asshole. Whoa! Well, breaking news from BBC: Joey Chestnut just went missing. <laughs> Dude, that's the perfect that's the perfect end of a human centipede. You. No no no. Joey Chestnut. That dude can get sewed. You get sewed to Joey Chestnut. Yeah. That's your that's your fantasy. Well I mean either that or like the two girls one cup, like they were literally eating shit. So like they have to like know what they're getting in for, right? Do you think they would be the perfect ones? Well, like, now I'm reconsidering. There's there, there's there's a bunch of good third ends to human centipedes, and it's just hard to choose one. I, Too bad. He's already been kidnapped. And no, there's no putting him back now. I feel <laughs> like uh, I feel like the third one, though, you know, it's kind of hard to beat you know, an entire prison of a human centipede. Because everyone here has seen Human Centipede 3, right? I still no. I, I couldn't make it. Uh, so it is... It is an experience, to say the least. It is. Wait, um, did you just say a whole prison a couple seconds ago? Yeah, the um, uh, spoilers alert for because now everyone was about to watch Human Centipede three after this, but it ends with them making an entire prison into Human Centipede. How many links is that? It's like at least a hundred. That's a Guinness record. <laughs> yeah, that might be. The, sh- the shit traveled the through the in most intestines. I'm just trying to think of the most impressive part of that experience. Like, That's you can't tell me. Like, a, a shit that traveled from, is it like a mile long, you think? I think the most impressive okay. is that you gave them money to make that movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dumbest yeah. Financed. Yeah. Imagine the letdown of the guy in front. Well, the thing is that, like, they had to have seen the first and the second one, and at that point had to have been like, you know what, guys? I think we're ready for the third one now. 
I think we've hit we've hit the point. People are calling for it. Let's give what, the you, what they want. They got they had to hit trilogy, and then after that, who knows what'll happen. My favorite thing is that the first Human Centipede, uh, Roger Ebert, refused to give it a star rating because he said that it defies um, classification as a movie. Uh, <laughs> That's great. That in itself is an accomplishment. Which, good, good for them for, for being able to break that barrier. I'm really glad for Roger Ebert that he got to witness that before he passed away. What if that was the last movie he saw? Like, what if you got, like, to the end and he was just like, I gotta classify this movie. I gotta see it one more time. And then he watched The Human Centipede and then he passed. I mean, it could be. No one definitively knows if that was the last movie he saw before he died. So, for all we know, it could have been. The last movie he reviewed before he died was To the Wonder, which is unfortunate because... As much as, you know, I love uh, Terrence Malick, Ben Affleck is not, you know, the best uh, the best person for his weird, dreamy uh, camera odysseys. Yeah, that's true. I'm not on Dean Ben Affleck. Unless it's hashtag Goodwill Hunting, in which case I'm all in. Yeah, he seems a little too, um, I don't know, rigid? Is that the word I want to describe? Yeah, like... Just to fit into a Terrence Malick film. I feel like Ben Affleck is the kind of guy that maybe needs structure in his movies and not just willy-nilly go around and just do whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I've never met Ben Affleck, so I can't speak on his character, but that's I mean, the vibe I get. That's actually, like, a perfect sort of um, a link to a lot of stuff that deals with and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, considering how that film uses, you know, two big actually like movie stars rather than what you think of as necessarily like great actors and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like Ben Affleck is still one of those examples of someone who's, you know, an actual movie star but isn't a good actor. Oh yeah, there's plenty of those. <laughs> that's what we in the industry, Jacob, call a segue. Oh. That's a nice segue into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written directed by okay. Quentin Tarantino. Okay. Uh, should we just jump into it then? Just get talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? What else are we going to do? <laughs> Let's do it then. Do it then. We could talk about the Human Centipede 3 some more if you guys are really feeling it. I don't have much to say other than that. To be completely <laughs> honest with you. If you've got anything to say, now's the time to get it out real quick. I'll save it for the next time. Okay. So let's see here. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was I said, was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Emile Hirsch, uh, Timothy Oliphant, uh, Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern. And the plot synopsis is a faded television actor and a stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. So I guess I'll say uh, let's start with giving our sort of general thoughts, feelings of the movie, and then we need let's uh, do a spoiler discussion. I'm sure we'll need one to at least talk about the ending. I think most of the review should be spoiler, so we can talk as openly as we can. Yeah, there's no real way to discuss the movie without talking about how the ending kind of... Because one of the biggest things about the film for me was how the ending changed you know, the entire two hours I just saw before it. Um, okay, yeah, I mean, it's fine. We'll just, okay, forewarning. 
if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, perhaps uh, check back in at a later time once you have seen it. Mikey, I'm talking to you. So, uh, Andrew, start it off. Uh, or Jeff Bezos. You what'd know? you think? So, I actually, long story short, I really loved it. You know, I think, like, I would assume, like, most of us here, Tarantino is definitely one of those people that was very much a gateway into getting into movies more seriously, if that makes sense. You know, I definitely remember back in high school when I saw Reservoir Dogs and just kind of having my mind blown thinking, wow, this is, you know, I've never seen a movie that's quite like this, you know, this sort of, you know, that deals with violence in this sort of way and has such cool dialogue and things like that. And as I've grown, there have been, you know, Tarantino movies I really love, such as Inglorious Bastards and you know, Kill Bill, which I think, you know, those two movies together told a masterpiece. And then some I'm not as into, which we can get into later. But what I loved most about this is that this truly felt the most personal of all Tarantino's films I've seen. And it felt so, it felt so much different than his normal films that I was really taken off guard by it and just you know all the normal i mean all the normal things about it you know perfect style of photography and performances and just brad pitt gave probably the best performance of his career and and i would say overall i loved it and all the problems that i had with it are fairly minuscule okay that's a solid that's a glowing review chris i only like two parts of the movie oh here we go (laughs) Um, the only two parts I liked were uh, the. Oh, I'm gonna lean on. The only two parts of the movie I liked were um, the stunt double meeting the children. I thought that was a fantastic moment, and I was actually very enthralled by it. And then the over-the-top violence at the end, and then I kind of liked. Um, not saying I liked the ending, but. I liked the over-the-top violence. I thought it was fucking hilarious. And then um, I liked the interaction between Leonardo DiCaprio and the little girl. Those three parts were the only three parts that I actually really enjoyed. I think I think Quentin Tarantino's style is just entertaining in general. So the whole movie I was able to get through without any issue. Way too long for me. But... I was able to get through it no problem and be entertained throughout. It's just like there were many parts where I was just sitting there and I was like, um, okay, like why can we just like push this forward just a little bit more, man? Like I'm not, I don't want this. Zach. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a similar boat as Chris where I didn't have any problem like getting through the movie with the runtime, but at the same time, when we get into the ending, like, this movie could be 40 minutes shorter and a lot better. And, like, I think this is his best-looking film. Like, I think Bobby Richardson shot the shit out of this movie, and, like, it looks amazing. And there's some, like, fabulous miniature work and a lot of, like, really amazing shots that they pulled off. And, you know, I think Leo and Brad Pitt are great together. And I, like this whole idea of sort of like a retrospective on your career. And I think that's done very well, but I would say like 
Tarantino is really good at creating worlds. Like, that's safe to say. And a lot of the world stuff that he does in this movie, like the old movie posters, you know, like recreating older movies, recreating famous movies, but putting Leonardo DiCaprio in them, like, that to me felt like what Tarantino was the most interested in doing. Definitely. I think he used this movie as a vehicle to just, like, recreate old Hollywood. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, I think that's a fair assessment. I think with me, I think I'm right in the middle of Chris and Andrew. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I loved it, but I certainly liked it quite a bit. Um, I know I talked a couple weeks ago about how the Hateful Eight kind of started to wear on me after watching it for what must have been, I don't know, maybe the sixth time. Um, and kind of some of the seams started to come through with some of his movies starting to feel overwritten. And I won't go as far as to say this movie is overwritten, but I think there are a lot of scenes that play out. And I think kind of once the magic of, oh shit, some of his dialogue can go on a bit too long. Like once that's made aware to you, it's hard to not notice it. Um, So I felt there were definitely a lot of scenes in this movie where it, I felt it was going on a little bit too long, and some things started to wear on me. But there were also a lot of elements of it that I enjoyed quite a bit and could have spent a lot of time with. And I think one of those things would have been any time Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio were hanging out. Like, I love the relationship between Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton. Um, it's just too bad that we didn't get to see more of that relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think all of his movies are overwritten but like sometimes it just works better than i think this is one of those scenarios where like it it works sometimes but not all the time and it's like they they they're the best part like of the movie yet they hardly spend any time together and there's there's some very like questionable things i think in this that i don't quite understand or see a reason for them being there one scene in particular that I can think of that felt kind of pointless to me was the one with Steve McQueen, because it didn't feel like that sort of exposition of saying, oh, here, Sharon Tate's married to Rowan Polanski, and then there's this other guy that she was married to, and then that just felt, it didn't really add anything, and it didn't feel cool enough for it to be point other than for... You know, I would have loved so much if, you know, Steve McQueen was, you know, a character in the movie in any significant way. But other than that, it just sort of felt like Tarantino doing his whole, hey, here's Steve McQueen. I love him, so I'm going to have him in the movie. This- the only thing that could have been worse is if it was like in Glorious Bastard style where like stops, a, like a thing comes on the screen that's like Steve McQueen. And then it goes into that little thing. <laughs> like... There's like um like he's he spent the last thirty years like telling everyone like I'm I'm a really big movie fan. Like I, I really like movies, like I love movies, I love old Hollywood and it's like this movie just like seems to him to be like his proof of that. Like, see, see, I told you I really like old Hollywood, like look at all these references I jammed in there. Like this is like Quentin Tarantino, like the hipster, where like the references are like one every three seconds and some of them are like so obscure they're like 
hey, remember that one TV show that was on in 1959 that only ran for four episodes that I really loved as a child? Like, I'm going <laughs> to put that in you. I'm going to recreate a scene from it. And it's like, some of it, some of it just feels like way too much. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have to get to the from Leo's movies that he's that his fictional character is in. Like, I would prefer to spend that time with him and Brad Pitt. I don't know. Yeah. I actually loved those so much. Like all of the all of the bounty loss scenes were just so because it had so much pastiche and just so over the top that is perfect. Like that whole 14 fifths of McCluskey sequence when he's just like, someone ordered fried sauerkraut before torching <laughs> yeah. you know, all the Nazis. Like, I did love that. I would take, I would honestly take an entire montage movie from Tarantino of just stuff like that. And so personally, anytime those sorts of things came up, I was totally on board. I liked it. I liked them individually. I just would, did <laughs> don't really want to see them in the movie. Like, I just didn't want them to be incorporated in what was happening. Like, if I saw them as, like, a after the fact, as the credits are rolling, I would have been so into it. But, wow. Like, like wow. the Red Apple cigarette commercial? Yeah. Like, I, I loved that. And I loved the fried sauerkraut. And I loved when they recreated The Great Escape but with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Like, I loved that. But then there's, like... Like all this stuff with like his the old westerns that he's in, and then like the Italian westerns that he's in, and then like like the western TV shows. I was like, I'm honestly just very tired of seeing Quentin Tarantino's western. Like I, I've seen it so much in his last three films. And it's yeah, like, I'm a bit like, move on. I'm a bit torn on all those like little things that they recreate and whatnot because I think you're right where a lot of that was made for him. And so part of me is kind of like, you know what, Quinn, I'm really glad that you got to make a movie where you could film all these things together. And I'm sure he had a fucking blast writing it. I'm sure he had even a bigger blast shooting it. Just when when you put that all together and now I am absorbing it as the audience member, it just doesn't hit as personal to me. So it it doesn't affect me as much as I'm sure it did him making it. So that's like where like the divide comes in for me. I will say, uh, by far, my favorite scene in the entire movie was Sharon Tate watching herself in the theater, like, watching her movies. That was just such a... Your dirty like, feet. Just, I was say continuation <laughs> of the feet. Well, that just comes to the territory. But I just thought that that was such... And I think it ties into... <clears throat> that. It just, com- it just comes with the territory? Yeah, with the, ter- <laughs> with the territory. I like that. Uh, but I even liked it. I liked it even more because one of the things that really sold this movie even more was the ending. So going full spoilers here, everyone who watched who watches the movie and has any sort of you know knowledge of the Manson murders knows how it ends. That you know Sharon Tate and you know the rest of people in our house all get stabbed uh, violently to death, and then. Um, you know, they're murdered that night. And so throughout the movie, there is that sense of dread the entire time. I know sitting there that even seeing the sort of, you know, how funny and warm and loving it is to all the characters, especially Sharon Tate, you kind of have this feeling knowing, all right, this is going to end in some sort of like this horrible tragedy. And so when he goes and just changes it right at the last second that they came to the wrong house and then, you know, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth just 
unleash the mo- the funniest slapstick violence ever <laughs> and just kills them. Not only is that so funny and rewarding as an ending, it kind of changes everything for me because then you think it's, okay, this Tarantino is basically saying, you know, how much Hollywood would be better if this didn't happen to Sharon Tate. You know, and so that sort of makes me that. So when I think back to the scenes of where you'd see her, where you'd where you'd think like, oh, this is you know engaging and intriguing, watching her, but you have that sort of dread thinking, at least that I did, knowing, all right, this is what happens to her. It kind of puts it in a new context, seeing like, oh, this was you know all diverted in this fairy tale. See. I've read, like, multiple people have that kind of reaction, where it's like, oh, Tarantino is giving Sharon Tate the life she never got to have. And, like, I will agree that I love the build-up to that scene. Like, I love the violence at the end. But when it takes the... Like, I agree that I felt... You feel that sense of dread... You feel that sense of dread throughout, like, the whole movie. Like, every time she's on screen. And it's like, when it it doesn't happen to her, like, I, I wasn't... I knew he wouldn't recreate the murders. Like, I knew he wasn't going to do that. But then, like, for the Manson murders, like, those people, and Sharon Tate to ultimately have nothing to do with each other, is, like, her presence in the film just feels... Like, so much cheapened now. Because, like, why... A, a very strong argument can be made that she doesn't need to be in the film at all. Yeah, well, the only thing... <clears throat> the only thing I keep thinking about is just that the Manson murders is just, like, a way to anchor... Just, like, an anchoring device to put it in a certain time period and, like, kind of get a feel of what's going on. Also to serve as a giant red herring where you think one thing's going to happen and ultimately you get something else. The one pushback I would give to that as to why I think it's so important even with changing history is because that was such um, a change in everything in Hollywood in America entirely. You know, with um, you know, with Sharon Tate's murder and the Manson murders, that was, you know, the entire end of the 60s right then and there. You know, so that mm-hmm. kind of changed basically America's, like, that ended the whole, you know, like, hippie, uh, like, hippie <clears throat> movement in America and kind of changed us to, like, a very different direction and everything. And so clearly it is saying that, you know, uh, without the, you know, without the Manson murders and everything, Hollywood might, you know, not have gone uh, to that weird sort of darker direction in the 70s and sort of this change in America's viewpoint stuff. So I think it is important just because that was a moment that changed an entire era. And so similar with, you know, Inglorious Bastards with, um, you know, blowing Hitler's face off, you know, is basically saying, oh, here, all of history could have been changed. Like, and here's, you know, sort of a story about that. Yeah, I think the one thing with Inglorious Bastards, though, is that it seems like it's it's been building to that ending since the very beginning. And with this one, it feels, tonally, it feels very out of place when you look at the rest of the movie. Like, I felt the rest of the movie was, like, a great little bit, like, exploring 
the contrast of Rick Dalton's career with Margot Robbie's career, where you have someone who's on the in, um, they're sought after, they're incredibly uh, beautiful, everybody wants a piece of them. And then you have Rick Dalton's character who's not on the outs, they're not, you know, no one's just flattered by him anymore. And so I really liked that concept quite a bit. The ending feels incredibly... Now, it doesn't feel necessarily out of place for a Tarantino film, but it feels out of place given what the rest of the movie seems to have been about and what it potentially was building towards. Like, do you guys agree with that at all? I wouldn't even... Like, I wouldn't even agree that Sharon Tate is sought after in this movie. Like, like th- that's that's ultimately, like, my problem, that she feels like such a non-character, like... She literally has nothing to do except to be there. Like, yeah. she like we see her at home. We see her at the movie theaters watching herself. And that's it. Like, she, she doesn't do anything. At least Hitler, like, is referenced throughout the entire movie in well, Inglorious Bastards. Plus, like, he is the main villain of the entire, not, not to mention, entire like, movie. Not to mention anyone in the entire movie <coughs> who Hitler is. And it's like, if you walked into this movie not really having any background, like, on the Manson murders, like, I think you get to the end of this, and you're like, what the fuck? Like, what? Mm. What is that? Why? What did I just watch? I don't I don't get it. I mean, I was cool. I was cool with what he did with Sharon Tate. Like, kind of like the, the suspense of just being like, oh, man, like, she was had so much potential, and then, like, looking at everything that she did regarding her movies, and, like, I actually liked that with her they actually showed the Sharon Tate movie and not just threw Margot Robbie over Sharon Tate and kind of refilmed it <laughs> but um I don't know I was a big fan of like using her as kind of a device to introduce the the children in the Manson family but like but she, it just it it, it just she it, doesn't well no it's just like whenever you see her that's what you think of so right, they're a, a constant that's a terrible reason to have it it is it is so i'm not saying that sharon tate i i think that having her in the movie is something right to do i just feel making her a more constant character and more involved would have been the better decision to make like there there certainly was a large group of people who thought putting her in the movie at all is tasteless and i don't agree with that like i think he has the right to like put her in the movie but if you're going to put her in the movie at least justify her like her being there yeah now i'm fairly certain when this movie was supposed to be produced by the weinstein company i think there was a whole different script involved around the manson murders and like it was completely a different story and then when he dropped weinstein and they were going to do other things i think he completely rewrote it because i'm pretty sure i read something about it was supposed to take place like right around the time of the manson murders and like samuel jackson had a character written where he was like a detective investigating the murders. Um, so this, so if that's true, this movie is completely different than what that was. So I wonder if that was just something that was left over to kind of anchor it, like I said. Which is kind of unfortunate, because now you've, she's kind of in there for... She kind of is only in there sort of for the ending little bit to kind of play back into Rick Dalton's thing, where... At any time in Hollywood, you could be introduced to anyone, and that changes your career. I think it's also, um, you know, going on that point. I think another, you know, you know, point to her part in it was that you know she's also like, you know, 
the exact opposite of Rick Dalton. You know, she was like yeah. the, she was the new so like the new era of Hollywood and there, you know, to so like I think that while, you know, her parts were, you know, it was obviously not very much dialogue and it's like scenes where it didn't seem like she was very active, I think she did serve as a sort of good metaphor of being of an opposite of who Rick Dalton is because you know this person is clearly at the end of his career about to lose his Hollywood stardom while having at that time someone who is very clearly a rising probably would have been you know a famous movie star and no I would have liked to have seen his I would have liked to have seen a lot of like counterexamples to what we see with Leo so we spent a lot of time with him on set like him fucking up his lines him getting frustrated um, kind of him accepting like shit. Maybe I am a hack. Maybe I am washed up. Well, I would have loved to have. I would have. Trailer. What's up? Oh, him alone. Him alone in his trailer. Oh, when I he said <laughs> when he says I'm not drinking anymore, and then just immediately takes a shot and throws <laughs> it off. Yeah. So perfect. Now, what I would love to have seen is like something similar to like Mulholland Drive, where we get a scene with Sharon Tate, like maybe completely nailing a role. Or, like, people just, like, being in love with her to kind of counterbalance what we see with Rick Dalton. Like, I think it's heavily implied we're supposed to get that. I would just love to have seen it. Showing that stark contrast between what he's going through and what she was going through. Yeah, because then it makes Sharon Tate a little bit more relevant in the movie and not just, like, sort of a pretty face to look at. But then I feel at that point you're just using her character to enhance Rick Dalton, which I feel if you're using her as an anchor, you can't use her as an enhancer, too. Not necessarily enhancer. I'm more just talking about the changing area, the changing of Hollywood, where it's heading, like the new wave of cinema versus you know what cinema used to be like and how things are changing. Like I would have loved to have seen that, and I think if it does all that and kind of sticks to it, and you kind of get little Tarantino flares in there, I think it very easily could have been one of my favorites of his, like top four or five. Um. I don't know for just some reason like the change like the change at the end like it doesn't feel out of place but it feels like a betrayal of what the rest of the film was like it felt like the film was very mature up until that point and then it kind of just went back to his old bag of tricks. One thing about the film that felt even weirder for me rather than start the changing of history with Sharon Tate was how um they put the Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood backstory as um, yeah. uh, as Cliff Booth's backstory. That felt um, that felt strange to me. Not for wait, sorry to interrupt, but who was Natalie Wood? So Natalie Wood was this actress uh, back in uh, in Hollywood back in the oh god probably forties like fifties who died in the exact same way that Cliff Booth's wife did. So basically that whole oh, okay. scene of it being ambiguous about whether he killed his wife on a boat is basically what happened to Natalie Wood. And all the majority of the evidence suggests that Robert Wagner was the one who killed her because they were on a boat. She was, you know, notoriously afraid of water and they were seen arguing before she died, but then there was never really solved. And so that felt strange first another you know massive hollywood story that's you know very much you know a huge thing that sort of loomed over hollywood for such a long time that it seems strange that tarantino would just you know have this a backstory for one of the fictional characters rather than that being a real thing to reference it, it seems strange that it's referenced one time 
heavily implied that he did it and then never spoken of again. Yeah. Which I kind of like that. I kind of like that device, to be completely honest with you. I like that it was just the one, one little segment, and then it's like, are you going to make your... You're gonna make your own conclusion. Well, yeah, I feel like you kind of have to like make some sort of backstory for somebody who's involved in the care in the movie so much. Like, you can't just have. You no, know, no, I'm, Cliff. I'm fine with the backstory of, oh, like he might have killed his wife. I'm fine with you just stating it, but then cutting directly to a scene where like it heavily implies that she did it is what I, I'm not a fan of. I think a lot of that cutting device in this movie didn't really work for me. Like that whole sort of like family guy style of humor where something like sets up a joke, you get a cut, a little scene plays out, and then you're back. Like a lot of it didn't really work for me in this movie. R.I.P. Sally Mankey. Yeah. Yeah. Why, Chris, Chris, that was your favorite part? No, 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 no. I was a fan of the Bruce Lee fight, though. Wait, I will say... Oh, yeah, that was funny. I but, like that. So then that scene on the boat, that then would be a flashback. So it's a flashback to the Bruce Lee fight. And then in that scene where we have the Bruce Lee fight, we're also getting a flashback to the moment on the boat. So you're getting a flashback within a flashback. That's so, like, he's on the roof thinking about the Bruce Lee fight. And while he's in the Bruce Lee fight, he's thinking about how the time when he killed his wife. So it's like... No, that happened before it. In the film because the the flashback the flashback to the wife scene happens in the trailer when uh rick Dalton's trying to convince kurt russell's character to let him get hired as the stunt double right but then that's Which is part of the flashback he's part of the flashback when he's getting on the roof does that happen before i thought that was so it's like no, you know, i think that's all happening together and he starts thinking about like back when he fought like <laughs> Because the woman starts yelling at him, and then at that point, is that when the flashback happens? The woman's yelling at him, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're back on the boat with him and his wife. No, then it cuts back. It cuts from there to him being on the roof, being like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I feel like there shouldn't be this much confusion about it. Like, I shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a three hour film. If you remember the sequence of the entire thing, then you have issues. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, I like, I like um, the end of it. I like the scenes. My favorite scenes for all the characters of when are when they are alone. I like Leonardo DiCaprio in his trailer alone. I like um, Brad. Pitt, or I mean, when they're not interacting with any other main characters, I like yeah. Brad Pitt interacting with Bruce Lee alone, and I love the interaction with him and um, Dern there. Yeah, Bruce Dern. I, yeah, Bruce Dern. I really wish. You know, it's one of those things that you definitely want to see how it could have been if, you know, uh, if Burt Reynolds had lived to play that role. Because yeah. was that the idea? He 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 was cast for it, and then he had made it to rehearsals and stuff, and then he died before filming oh. started. So they replaced him with Bruce Stern. But yeah, that was one of my favorite scenes for sure. Was when he visits the Manson Ranch. Mm. I think I one like of my favorite Stern, but I don't like that scene as a whole. I think it's odd how I think it's odd how quickly the whole thing diffuses. I like the mm, the interaction between just him, the redhead girl, and the door. Dakota Fanning. What? That's Dakota Fanning. Fuck, she got old. Yeah. 
Meth will do that to you. <laughs> well, it's just like that interaction, like that doorway talk, like of him walking to the door and be like, I think I'm going to go see him anyways. And then he goes up to the door and the interaction of her's like, I'm going to try and stop you. And he's like, I'm not going to stop. That kind of tension there was, to me was one of my favorite well, like when parts I was, of the movie. When I was watching that, I was just like, I don't know, Brad Pitt, like you're kind of out of line here. Like, you don't live here. The thing is, is that like, He's in, he has good intentions and you can sense that because you can definitely see that these people are doing something fucking awful. Like you think they're a little weird and strange, but it's also like, dude, you haven't seen Bruce Dern in like 15 years. You really don't have any right to come bargain and see how he's doing. But it's kind of implied that this is some sort of old man who he clearly thinks something weird is happening here. And like you get the impression that these people are either A- he's not around anymore. Like, that's what I was thinking throughout the entire thing is that this dude is gone and they're trying to get him to not discover that this dude is gone. So when he goes to shake his body, I was half expecting him to not move at all. Like I was, I was not expecting Bruce Dern to turn around and be like, what? What's going on? <laughs> and also two of what I perceive as the most annoying females on the planet are in that scene. One of them is non-verbal, but I did notice who it was. The second one is very verbal. Uh, one of them being Lita Dunham, and the second one being Harley Quinn Smith, who is in the scene but does not have any lines. Wait, was Lena Dunham in the movie? Yeah. She's the only girl that Spawn that talks that's not Dakota Fanning, or the girl that's in Brad Pitt's car. She's wearing the white dress. Oh, she, interesting. Just, like, go get Tex. That's Lena Dunham. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, I did not even notice at all. Uh, full disclosure, I loved Girls more than anything. I thought it was a perfect like, series of stuff. That's so I'm funny. Like, that five episodes deep. Like, I really I liked the show, but like for some, like, her just outside that show, like, I can't stand. She, uh, she could use a publicist, that's for sure. He's <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> like, oh, I like that rant. I like that scene quite a bit. I just thought it was strange how it, how the whole thing like diffused so easily. Yeah. Like, there was like, like when Brad Pitt's talking in the parking lot to everybody, and he's like, you know, where's, where's Mr. Dern, and everyone's like all like, oh, he's sleeping, and like the way they say it, it sounds like they're lying, like they're making up something. He doesn't believe them, and then everything they say, everything everyone says, makes it sound like they're lying. And then when he checks, like, when he goes and sees Bruce Dern, it comes to find out everything, like, was fine. Like, and it was exactly how they said it was. That's so what I thought that was. I thought that was kind of odd. So I don't know if that was just kind of, like, Tarantino's little, like, the whole thing was supposed to be comedic. It was, like, tension diffused with comedy. I don't know. Well, I think that was meant to build tension. Like, that was the introduction to the, okay, something's not quite right here. To then yeah. go to the, like, the, the last... <laughs> wall of the fence being that girl behind the door that but door i think like stopping but it. i think like the tension comes more from the fact that you know it's the manson family and not that the scene itself is actually tense i mean it contributes but i don't feel that was the part that made it tense i think the knowing it's the manson family hints off to the fact that something is definitely not right but them playing off as if something is not right is really what puts it over the edge not over the edge but really kind of gets it closer towards towing that line of like okay 
there's something fucky here. That did feel like the turning point for me in the film of when it went from the sort of dreamlike comedy to, oh, this is, you know, where it's darker. That's that's sort of when I thought, like, Charles Manson and this family would become more of a factor, and then they just did it. It's very strange that Charles Manson's in it for, like, 20 seconds and says two lines. That is my favorite thing. That was so strange, because I did take one bathroom break during the film it was probably it was during um it was during the scene where brad pitt visits the manson family and so there's probably about two minutes of it that i missed but from my recollection there's only that one scene in the driveway with charles manson in it right what i yeah. love about the spawn ranch scene is that you have the threat of charles manson without him ever having to actually be there like, they reference Charlie many times, and, like, while that scene plays out, you have this constant, like, look-over-your-shoulder like type feeling of, like, oh, shit, he's probably going to show up. Like, mm. what's going to happen? And he doesn't. Because, like, you you do see him, so you're like, this, this it, he's too big of a figure, figure for them what, to only show once, you know? What it seems weird to me is, like, when he was cast, whoever that guy is was cast as Charles Manson, like, it was the biggest thing. It was, mm-hmm. like... So and so cast to play Charles Manson in a new Quentin Tarantino film, and it's like, looking back on it, it's like that news, like that's not even a big deal. It's strange <laughs> like, he got casted twice because he's also Charles Manson in the new season of Mindhunter, and oh. so it's interesting that I guess both David Fincher and Quentin Tarantino thought you know he's perfect for it. What so. is this? What does that say about this guy? <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> It's just, like, even, like, five seconds of you seeing Charles Manson that was in the movie was in the trailer. So, like, they kind of lead you to believe that he's going to he's gonna be there. Like, he's going to be a present figure. I, I watched the trailer for the first time after I saw the movie. And I'm really glad I held off because, like, the whole movie is in the trailer. Mm. I was, because, like, I, I had no idea what was going to be uh, kind of, like, the story. Like, I had no idea where they were going to go with this. I was like, there's a movie guy, there's a stunt double, somehow Charles Manson is thrown in there. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Like, I feel this is obviously getting the comparison to Pulp Fiction, because it's like storylines sort of intermingled and whatnot. And I would say this has the exact same flaw that Pulp Fiction has, where it just just has parts I don't like. And so that brings the movie down as a whole, because there's parts I don't like. And it seems like with Pulp Fiction, like, each of those story threads had its own sort of arc. I guess I just, there are multiple cases in this film where I just, I just don't see the arc. And that could be an editing thing, and I think it is, because this film almost has no structure at all, rather than just, here's a, here's a throwaway line, now we're going to cut to exactly that throwaway line. Was. Like, that just seemed like what it was doing. It kind of just felt like you were just thrown into the mix of this guy's life, and then you know that there's an ending point, and it was leading all to that ending point, and then all of a sudden Quentin Tarantino just pulled the curtain out from over your eyes and was just like, ta-da! You know, like, it was like you're all going towards this one goal, but then, whoop, not quite. How did you guys feel about, like, the 15-minute segment that's, like, Kurt Russell just narrating all these bits of information for you? Did not like it. Went on way too long. I don't like Kurt Russell as the narrator because it makes absolutely no sense. 
Yes, yeah, so I was very confused by that. I wish he had brought back um, Samuel Jackson as a narrator, like in *Inglorious Bastards*. At least that would make sense to me, because like, if you if you want to use Kurt Russell because you like his voice, I'm fine with that. But he can't be a character in the movie, because then it's like, okay, well, why is this ki- random character from the movie telling me this information? And am I now supposed to believe that this entire movie should be seen through his perspective? And it's like, why? Why? Like, it should be someone who's not in the movie. The Coen Brothers did it in Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah but he's not in the movie. Elliot, like, makes a very tiny appearance. It's just they as, also played that off, as, which is very meta, too. Yeah, because the whole joke, uh, the whole joke of that is at the very end. You know, it was a story that Sam Elliott was telling us. You know, so that kind of had. That had a payoff to it, whereas this didn't really have a point for Kurt Russell doing the narration. I guess there's no payoff. I, I'm, so, I'm not going to lie, Jack. I still don't know what meta means. It's right I think over it's, I think it's like oh, when, you're, when you're self-referential and aware that you're doing it. Like, oh. in, um, like in the house that Jack built, when he, when he had that segment where he just showed clips from his previous movies just verbatim in the film that is probably the most obvious example of meta ever yes or just the whole film of synecdoche new york in general is very meta it's it's so perfect movie by the way yes it's amazing you can talk about it in the things we watched because i watched it oh excellent i fucking love that movie so 10 10 out of 10 one of my all-time favorites well um, shocked one thing i <laughs> One other thing I wasn't that big a fan of in Hollywood was the scenes with Al Pacino. Because, you know, obviously, mm. love him. I did not think that it really added anything or... Another definitely. person where it was, made, it was like, such a big deal that Al Pacino was cast in a Tarantino movie. And it's like, anyone could do that. Yeah, he definitely didn't add much to it. I'm not. I'm not even cons- like. I'm not even sure like what his character was. Is he like an agent for Rachel or some some sort of like advisor to him? I think he was a producer. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he was trying. Because he was trying to get uh, Rick Dalton to be in the spaghetti westerns, and so I think right. He was okay. Trying to convince him to go and work in them. Yes. Okay. Yep. I. I don't know. I don't know why this art made me feel so like blown away but like the shot where they show the pan am plane up in the sky for some reason i saw that and i was like dang that's like a really good looking plane for like special effects maybe you notice it because it's probably one of the only times tarantino has used special effects in his movies really (laughs) are you cgi yeah i didn't notice that Mm -hmm. like all the the old cars and stuff like they do that big crane shot, like, over where Brad Pitt lives. It's, like, all the old cars, and it, like, goes up and up. Yeah. That's all miniature stuff. Like, they, they recreated that stuff as miniatures. Oh, that's cool. Huh. But, I don't They wanted, because he, I listened to an interview, and they were talking, like, they asked him how he did it, and they were like, well, they want me to do CGI. And I was like, no. Like, we either have to find them all, or we have to find Matchbox versions of them and do it as a miniatures. Like, well, it'll be a lot cheaper to do it as miniatures, and he was like, and he was like, it's a, it'll be much cheaper for us to do it CGI, but if we have to do it for real, it's going to be cheaper to do it miniatures. It's going to take us three days, and no one will know the difference. And he said, but I'll know the difference. <laughs> miniatures. Perfect. I like it. What did you guys think of the sequence where they were turning on all the neon lights? I loved, loved it. it. Oh, right. very. I, that was very cool. I just want to be sure I wasn't the only one. 
it's like completely unnecessary but so perfect yeah <laughs> I mean, like, like this is in terms of like visual splendor i don't think any other of his movies have been this good no i don't think so like this movie just look like the costuming the sets like it all looks amazing i would push back and say that while this certainly is one of the best i think that kill bill volume one has some scenes that can that can match it you know uh specifically like the you know the big climactic fight scene with um the bride uh you know where she kills like you know a hundred people it's just the crazy 88 scene exactly just but i will say that you know i mean i'm such a sucker for la movies you know Mulholland Drive, Inherent Vice, Under the Silver Lake, you know, any of those film, any film that's just shot in LA, it's just one of those places where if you put a camera on there, it's gonna look perfect, and Tarantino has such a, you know, visual aesthetic that it really was, you know, a gorgeous film. Mm-hmm. Um, just as a non-sequitur, I th- just while I'm thinking of it, I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Rick Dalton gives his great performance as the bad guy on the Western set. Completely agree. And like when they rap, the little girl goes up to him and is like, that was some of the best acting I ever seen. And he starts tearing up. Like I thought that was great. Definitely a great Leo right there. I think that was a very necessary scene for the movie because it showed, okay, this is why he was a movie star. You know, yes. Why he was a TV star because he had, you know, because he has those skills. And so that was uh, definitely one of my favorite scenes in the movie, for sure. And not only that, the payoff, the like, hey, maybe I'm not washed up. Maybe I still have something left in me. He, he has that whole spiel where he is in the in the trailer and he's like, I'm done drinking. And then he gets home and just pounds a pitcher of margarita. <laughs> or when he's just like, I'm going to blow your brains out tonight. I'm going to... Uh, blow your brains out all over your pool if you don't get this, like shouting in the mirror. <laughs> I wasn't watching him. I was watching his reflection in the mirror because his reflection in the mirror was staring me right Well, yeah, it's looking at you. No, that was great. I was like, that's intense, dude. I, just, yeah, I, yeah. I wish that Tarantino had, had, used, had used Brad Pitt more among, across his movies because even only, only compared to maybe Samuel Jackson, he is the best, you know, tarantino uh, actor like as far as you know being in his movies because Finny both style. both hollywood and inglorious bastards are you know is brad pitt's two best performances yeah for sure i like benjamin I definitely put him up there i like benjamin button that's that's that to me that's prime prime yeah that's brad good pitt. i mean i just watched tree of life today which brad pitt's quite good in as well but that was very, but very different role. Very different role. Definitely, he is great in Tree of Life for sure. But I think that you know, there's something, and it's probably because Brad Pitt has such you know a classic movie star, um, you know, '50s vibe to him. He fits so easily into Tarantino's sort of you know retro world. When's the guy gonna stop looking good? Never. Like, is there gonna be a point like so. where you look at Brad Pitt and you're just like. Ah, just look better. I think it yeah. depends on how he wears his hair. I mean, Even when he's the 90-year-old baby and Benjamin Button, <laughs> you still look at him and you're like, 
I'd fuck that nine-year-old <laughs> baby. <laughs> oh, I mean, Jeff Goldblum's still uh, still looking great. He's almost seventy, right? Yes, oh, a nine-year-old baby. <laughs> um, what else to say? Let's see. I don't know about if I have much else to say. Um, I really, really talked about it's perfect. Oh yes, I was a, a big fan of the soundtrack. I, I the, the only thing I didn't like about music was in the first like twenty minutes of the movie how every single time you cut to Brad Pitt's character in the car, it's playing a different song. Which like I get it, it's a time. You wanted to be thing. listening the one the same. 20 minutes no off. and that's the thing it's like I the get grateful it's dead like the alive album was just playing I would, for 40 minutes i would rather have him have played like one artist different songs or something i just was got kind what? of annoyed of just how like, many times like, how many times do you go on the radio and it's the same song or the same artist all the time oh uh, no that's that's um, that's what i'm saying though is that like i understand the necessity of it through the time lapse it's just i didn't like it and i it Turn me off. Get out of here with this. Listen, Jake, if this is my trash cans, I'm willing to accept it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not with that one, but. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, Quinn. When I'm riding in the car, I usually just put on my Mumford & Son CD, and I, just, <laughs> I don't understand why you didn't use that music. One of the, one of the three CDs I own, by the way. J5. <laughs> Uh, or the uh, the Weezer Blue album. Uh, teal. Teal. Um, I don't know how much else I have to say. Once time upon uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, anything left for you guys to say? Uh, I guess it was it was kind of disappointing that Margot Robbie didn't have as much to do because I do like actually like her quite a bit as an actress. Well, he rejects your hypotheses. Who's he? Quentin Tarantino. That she's a good actress? Have you, did you not see his interview at Cannes? No, what'd he say? Someone basically criticized him for, like, essentially, like, what we said, like, Margot Robbie being, like, a non-character and not really having many speaking lines or much to do in the movie. And he just said to her, I reject your hypotheses. That was it. Well, all right, Quinn. Yeah, I mean, I feel both ways. I mean, it's... I don't feel that her character was... Uh, I don't feel like her character was wasted or anything, or the fact she didn't have lines, you know, reduces it. I mean, I guess that's, like, a fair question to ask. You're like, oh, why does, you know, character not have as any, any lines as the other ones? But I feel like that doesn't even remotely count to the quality of a character. You know, you don't need to have... I, I agree that she doesn't need lines, like, to give a good performance. But I, I still think... Just ask Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water. Yeah, like, I, I still think, like, I get it. The amount of screen time. I, I get it, Quentin. Like, you're you're annoyed with the questions you've gotten over your career, and you're tired of answering the same questions about violence, but, like, you still have to answer the, the criticisms. <laughs> like, if someone's asking you, you got to answer that. Maybe it wouldn't have been such a big deal if you don't cast a high-profile actress like Margot Robbie. But she, I mean, the look of Sharon Tate, like, she mastered. Sure, no arguments there, but I do. There are a few like self-referential things that 
are kind of interesting, I guess. Like, when you have that long sequence of Kurt Russell, and, like, he's basically just shitting on Spaghetti Westerns. It's, like, it's just, like, it seems funny that, like, at the time, like, they were considered, like, you were basically selling out and you were doing things and you were a hack now because you're in Spaghetti Westerns. But, like, Quentin Tarantino loves Spaghetti Westerns. And, like, Sergio Leone is now considered, like, probably the greatest Western director ever. I rewatched, uh, I rewatched for a few dollars more the other day, and I was just like, it's perfect, absolutely. It's so, it is so funny to think that those films were derided in the past, because it literally is, you know, the gold standard as far as Westerns. Like, maybe, maybe John Ford is maybe a little highly regarded, but, like, even still, like... Hey, man, shout out to the hometown hero, John Ford, being from Maine and all. But what? Right. P-Town, Portland. What up, John? <laughs> oh, gosh. And then the scene with the the Manson people, like, just, I don't know. There's a lot about those characters that just bug me, even though, like, I get it. Here's a can of worms worth opening up. Okay, so... The Manson family murders like it's it's thwarted. They're they don't murder Sharon Tate. But in this universe, isn't Charles Manson still technically alive and doing well? So he could just plan another attack against another actress or actor? Well, it just seems weird that like their instructions are not, Hey, you need to kill Sharon Tate because she's in movies. It's like, hey, you know that person that we knew? We'll go to their house and just kill whoever lives there now. It's like that just seems like such a strange plan. Do you think Charles Manson will see this movie? He's dead. What? <laughs> he died? You seem so sad by that. <laughs> like I never knew that he died. When My he die? prediction is that Charles Manson will not see this film. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like the movie, you think? I think he'd be just as mad as we are that he has such little screen time. <laughs> and he'd be mad that they didn't get the swastika tattoo, right? Oh, my gosh. But, like, like legit, well, when, when did he die? Is. Like, in all seriousness. A couple, couple years ago? It's I don't like think it's years. been that long. Two years ago, maybe? I never heard about this. I feel like this was this a... I feel like this would have been, like, Charles big Manson news. Died. It was. He had, like, a heart attack or something. I mean, he was very old. So, yeah, he just... Oh, yeah. You die when you get old? Hey, wow. shut up. I'm trying to answer your question. Right. When did Charles Manson die? Charles Manson died November 19th, 2017 at AJ3 in Bakersfield. It's been almost two years. Dang. Yeah, almost two years. There you go. Um, one sort of, my sort of final piece I would say about this movie is only tang- tangentially related, but Everyone should check out the podcast. You must remember this. It's um, it's by this person who does this like very deep dives into histories of old Hollywood and has lots of very fascinating episodes. And it's sort of like she'll do a whole season where it's a few episodes that are you know an hour and a half to our song about different topics. And she has this uh, great great season about the manson murders and just goes all the way into like charles manson from when he was born all the way till it happens and it goes super deep in it so if you have any interest whatsoever in learning more about the manson murders that is a great start what's it called again you must remember this you okay he's only five two 
It makes him far less intimidating. He's fine. Yeah, kind of does. He's shorter than me. What's a what's a legal midget or a legal dwarf? Under five feet. He's almost there, buddy. Almost. Oh. Almost. Anybody? Yeah, anything else to say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Um, I I don't have anything to say about it. I just want to know, upon first viewing and sitting on it for like how long you have, where you rank it. Above well, I've got a, I've got a whole ranking. I was going to ask you all how you would rank his films now. Oh, he, he made, you, you put a okay, lot let's, of this. Okay, let's answer this one question first. Okay. Change things. Okay, ask it. Are we determining that Kill Bill is one film? Yes. Okay, then... I don't agree, but, like, whatever. You don't have to agree. I'll go by what's voted upon. I voted as one because, even though it is two films, I always watch it as one. And he said that he split it in two because of, like, producer pressure. Yeah, because... Have you, have you heard the story? Uh, maybe. You tell it anyways. It's... One of his friends, who was a producer, I think it's, I think maybe it was Lawrence Bender, but maybe it's not. Like they, he screened the movie for them, and he comes up, his friend comes up to him and he says, "You know what? I think my uncle would really love this movie." And he's like, "Oh, like, like, thank you." And he's like, "But he won't love it because it's four hours long." And he was like, "Okay, I, I, I see your point. I'll put it into you. You win." Hmm. Interesting. It's, it's funny bringing this up because I actually sent Zach a list of my Tarantino films ranked. So this is I've got this already nice and listed. Hollywood in there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So let's give uh, Once Upon a Time and Star like Once Upon a Time Hollywood star ratings if we're all done, and then uh, let's rank some Tarantino films. Andrew, what do you rank? Giving it out of five stars. I would give it. Four. Okay. Chris? Oh, me. Um, I'll go 3.5 on first viewing, but could go lower. Okay. <laughs> it could go lower. This is, this is the first time Chris's review has actually matched his star rating. <laughs> I am also going to go with a 3.5. I am going with a four and a heart on Letterboxd. And a heart? And a heart. Ooh. I did like it. There's just some things that like I said, take like, me down a bit. There are moments of Pulp Fiction that I truly love and are truly some of the greatest moments in cinema ever. This movie, there are just, there are just parts of it that I don't like, so it brings this, the whole thing down as a yeah. whole. This movie is a lot like Under the Silver Lake for me, where there's a lot of individual moments that I absolutely love, and when you put it all together, it's kind of it's not... The, 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 the whole is not as good as the parts. Well, you are wrong about the Silver Lake. Yeah, I'm co-signing Zach on this one. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I've, want, I've seen a couple times now. I've tried it. Maybe one more force feed, and I'll like it. But so far, I still can't do it. you got to force feed it. You won't love it. <laughs> I'm going to force feed it to my top 50. <laughs> right up there with Cowboys and Aliens. That's already in. Well, that's, yeah, that's true. That's already in. That's true. That's good. That that's giving me flashbacks. I have not seen that since I saw it in theaters. When God, I I must have been in high school. I don't remember what year that came out, but yeah, I, saw I think it. we found out it's like 2011 or something like that. Yeah, it could make the top 50. It of makes the it makes the decade cut. 
Wait, Cowboys versus Aliens? Was uh, yeah. Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford. That was 2011? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. 2010, 2011. That's so weird. For some reason, I I feel like that movie came out in 2006. It, it gave off that vibe. <laughs> it's really 2006 movie. <laughs> it's 2011. <clears throat> so maybe even then it felt dated. Um, who knows what it'll be like now in 2018, 2019. Yeah, I need to give that a rewatch. Same. Uh, okay, Andrew, rank your Tarantino films for us. Okay, so this is going to go from my uh, least sort of enjoyed to my favorite. Okay. So starting from the top, we've got Django Unchained, then Death Proof, then Pulp Fiction, then Hateful Eight, then Jackie Brown, then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, then Reservoir Dogs, Inglorious Bastards, and then Kill Bill. And that went from least enjoyment to most? Correct. So Kill Bill Jan- is Django is the least enjoyed movie of his of his nine. Interesting. It could be so much better if it just was cut down much. So many there's so many scenes in it that I just love, but it just drags on so much. If if there's any movie that deserves yeah. like, a recut by someone else, that's it. It's very interesting because that is the first movie of his that Sally Mankey did not edit. Yeah, that's kind of where it felt for me, like, the decline starts to go. Like, you can kind of feel, like, the fatigue kicking in, the overwrite, the overwriting dialogue, over-the-top scenes. Absolutely. And then Kill Bill, just, I feel like that is by far his best use of influences and aesthetic. Just so many things in it that are so perfect. You know, what with the, you know, the c- complete ripoff from Lady Snowblood when you know, at the end of part one to, like, the Looney Tunes sound effects when, um, you know, when she's fighting in that trailer. And it's just every part of it. It's so over-the-top and funny, but then also, like, the action, everything's choreographed. It's definitely my favorite by far. Mm-hmm. Well, since Django was your last one, I will I will go next. Because Django is number one for me. <laughs> and then Death Proof. Kill Bill, Jackie Brown, Bastards, Reservoir Dogs, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Pulp Fiction, The Hateful Eight. Nice. Chris? Mine is a very loose list because I haven't seen all of his movies. Um, Plus, I haven't made a formal ranking before, so I'll just give it a go. Give us an informal one, then. Informal one. Um... Number one in Glorious Bastards. Then I go Django. Then I go Reservoir Dogs. Then Pulp Fiction. And then the two episodes of CSI he did. (laughs) 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 Yeah. um, And then all I know is Hateful Eight's at the very bottom uh, with Kill Bill right above it. Okay. Is it like, I like that people, I love Glorious Bastards, don't get me wrong. And, like, people always point to it as, like, this is his best movie. But I think people remember, like, the four or five really great scenes from that movie, and they forget that the rest of it is all just filler. But we're going to love we're gonna love this, Zach, because my number one is also in Glorious Bastards. <laughs> also in my top four on Letterboxd. <laughs> number two, Reservoir Dogs. Number three, Django Unchained. Number four, Kill Bill. Number five, Pulp Fiction. Number six, once upon a time, once upon a time in Hollywood. 
Number seven, Hateful Eight. Number nine, or number eight, Jackie Brown. Number nine, Death Proof. You guys are all wrong about Death Proof. It's amazing. I'm seen Death Proof. I'm. St- I've still got to watch it. I just think it's just kind of thin. Yeah, it's, it's. It's a very odd movie. Like, like this, you're like, a very long time into it before it's kind of introduced. Like, really, what's going on? You could ask me on any day of the week of the year, what's your favorite Tarantino character? And without a doubt, without any hesitation at all, I would tell you Stuntman Mike. He's not bad. It's just weird that like you spend so, like there's that bar sequence in the beginning is so long. That could be one of his longest sequences. Yeah, it's very over the top, and ultimately that's what stops Inglorious Bastards from being one of my all-time favorite films is it's so close to me there's so many sequences in glorious bastards that i could just watch over and over again on repeat but there are so many there are so many dialogue scenes that just stop the movie right then and there like basically any of the scenes with shoshana and uh that weird fucking nazi war hero like when she's hanging up the sign when she's at the diner and he keeps getting interrupted by fans, both those just go on for so, so long. But then that also has some of my all-time favorites. Like, the best Tarantino... I mean, I think most people could agree that the best Tarantino scene of all time is is the table discussion between, uh, um, uh, between the farmer and then... Um, I would agree. I can't, I can't, I can't remember what his name is. Yeah, second, second best. Next two? I love the diner sequence in Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Steve Buscemi's funny. Yeah, I just I mean, love Tarantino like, talking about like what um, Like a Virgin is about. <laughs> that, and then also, um, yeah, it, that's the thing is because you, because when I think about that, is you put those first three scenes, Glorious Bastards, <laughs> it's, Literally everything is, could not be better. The scene where Brad Pitt is explaining uh, their mission, perfect. Everything of that, great. And then the scalping scene when they use uh, when they use the music from uh, was it Once Upon a Time in the West or The Good and the Bad and the Ugly? They used right before the bear Jew executes him. It's well, good, bad, and the ugly. Good, bad, and the ugly. It's just so. Perfect. And then, of course, Brad Pitt saying Bongiorno is still the funniest thing. <laughs> all, oh, all. did you guys n- notice that one of the directors in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood he works for is Antonio Margaretti? I did catch that. And I thought that was <laughs> okay. Movie. I'm glad you caught it. Uh, I do. I just love so much, like, the scene that you were talking about Deathbook at the bar, and then, like, then they're outside. Tell and Mike's just like, you know, people say, well, you're an okay in my book. <laughs> well, actually, I have a book. <laughs> it's just like my favorite thing. I ever. mean, the ending where they're just all kicking his ass is so perfect. I mean, that is like, that is unstoppable for sure. I just felt like there is a good movie in there, but not in the one I saw. I do like when they're in the car. Like he's giving that girl a ride home, and he's like, "So you going left or right?" And she's like, "I'm going right." He's like, "Well, that's too bad, cause I'm going left." And the way that I don't, that unfolds, I do like that. Like there are a lot of good moments. 
as a whole, though, it yeah. feels like a mess. You're a mess. It's a mess. I am a mess. It's true. Same sheriff and Kill Bill in town. What? What'd you say? Like, when they're when he's in the hospital, it's the same sheriff in the same town as Kill Bill. Oh, really? Ah, I did not know that. That is a fun fact, Zach. The same town and yeah. same sheriff? Yeah. yeah. He, he, he couldn't be the sheriff of a different town, so it'd have to be the same town. I mean, he could. And career changes happen all the time. You think he, he holds, at the same time, the sheriff title and three different counties i'm not saying at the same time it could be two different times you could quit one county to be sheriff of another county a sheriff is a bond for life sir oh okay my bad have you no honor once you're voted in there's no getting rid of you yeah have you no dignity i have no dignity i've seen i've seen uh i've seen the rock and uh was it walking tall same thing he's get he get voted sheriff he doesn't even use a gun he uses a bar lumber he uses a piece of wood Link to that town for life. <clears throat> All right. Well, then, let's move it on, then. Let's get into some other things that we've been watching. Um, Andrew, open it up to just whatever you've seen since the last time you were on. I'm sure that's quite a bit of stuff. Oh, man. That has been – yeah, that has been a lot. Uh, this week in particular, actually, has been a fairly big movie week for me because I've been really – trying to get back into the regular habit of watching a Criterion Channel movie every day. Haven't been completely successful, but I managed to watch quite a few. Um, yeah, do, you have, do you have the Criterion Channel app? Yep, I do. On, nice. Well, on this old Roku I have. And so it's been great. Uh, at the beginning of, this week, uh, beginning of this week, I watched Naked by Mike Lee, and it was great, you know, heavy fucking movie for sure, but... Oh, yeah, I've been wanting to, been mean to watch that for a while. But, I mean, he is one of the all-time greatest. I I love um, Secrets and Lies so much, and this was just as good, but it's, you know, very bleak, heavy film. Uh, I watched Weekend, uh, the Andrew Haig one, not the Godard one, and it's perfect. You know, Lean on Pete was... But that and First Reformed kind of fought each other for my favorite movie of last year. And so I was very excited to see this one before it. And while it wasn't as visually stunning as Lean on Pete, it was, you know, a really great movie. And he he definitely <laughs> understands, you know, interpersonal drama like better than a lot of different directors. Weekend is a fabulous stepping stone for forty five years, which I think is just it's one of the best films of the decade, as we will find out later this year. I haven't seen um, I haven't seen Forty Five Years yet, but it's definitely one of the things. It's definitely on my list, and I feel bad making this comparison because you know I think this is kind of uh, a dumb thing to make, but obviously there are a lot of similarities between Weekend and Call Me by Your Name, and I try not to and I try not to make those connections because you know just you know two. Two gay films such as Focus on the Relationship don't necessarily have a connection to each other, but it's hard not to make those uh, not to make those connections. I feel like Calling by Your Name was such a you know a visually perfect film that I kind of wish that there was a little bit more, especially with you know sort of gorgeous like scenes in like London and stuff. One had psychedelic furs and nectarines. One here I thought we were talking about Weekend at Bernie's. Another perfect film. Uh, and today, actually, I watched uh, 
I watched Sawdust and Tinsel, the you know, the Bergman film, for the first time, and yeah, it was great. It's I've been trying to watch more of the early Bergman stuff, and <laughs> and I was a huge fan of this one. It's very sort of it was very bleak, you know, at the end and stuff. There's lots of parts that they're like pretty funny, but it's just you know watching someone's uh, relationships fail. Jacob hates Bergman. He totally did. Fucking <laughs> hate him. Uh, you're, just, you're just waiting for the next Joel Schumacher movie. As far you know as it, you know it, did. As far as uh, movies of this year that I've seen, like I said, I missed a lot of films and exhibition but uh if it counts as, if it counts as a 2019 release because i know it premiered in 2018 at the festival stuff under the silver lake is probably my favorite um 2019 film so far i would count it are we counting that i, I mean like we we are in a very strange circumstance where i was privy to a release of said film. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that we just got really good at guessing. Yeah, I think it way earlier than other films. It got yeah. its theatrical release. I'm pretty sure 2019. So yeah, that's when I would say to count it for any lists. That's where it will be on then. Numero uno. Gosh, in 2018, we just we just best guess in the world. You know, like. Andrew Garfield drew a lot from that commercial, you know. Yeah, it was, it was a great, great trailer, great trailer. <laughs> uh, okay, let's keep going around, and we'll circle back. Chris, what do you got? What do you watch this week? I have not watched any movies in the past two weeks besides one. Okay, do you want to save it? We'll come back to you. Uh, I'll get it out of the way now. Just get you out of the way so you can just slip back and listen. That way I can soak in all of your wisdom and knowledge. <laughs> uh, the only movie I watched in the past two weeks was I watched Her. Oh. And, um... First time? No, no. No, no, not Did first time. Did we see time. it together? In, no. In, in, we, um... I'm pretty sure we all watched it at Brandon's house once. It's a weird movie for a bunch of dudes to watch. Funny, right. uh, funny thing about her, I saw that movie completely by mistake with no uh, <laughs> with no knowledge whatsoever about it going into it because I went on Christmas Day that year it came out, I went to go see Inside Lewin Davis and when I got there the entire uh, the entire showing was sold out except for two seats in the front row and the far left. Now, if I'm seeing Fury Road, I want to be uh, I want to be in the front row. But if I'm seeing Inside Lewin Davis, I'm sitting I'm sitting middle of theater. So I go back and I say, Hey, sorry, you know, there's like only front seats. Could we possibly get you know ticket to a different movie? And her happened to be showing right then, uh, you know, like five minutes. When I saw that, and my life was changed. I'm picturing I'm picturing somebody sitting there in the front row inside Lewin Davis, just like, Wow, I feel like he's playing guitar on me. I feel like this this cat is like I can feel the fur. You know? No, but um, her her her's really good. It's a really good flick. Um, the only <laughs> the only thing I, I was think... calling the flick. I like that. Like your phrases about movies is what should be on their Blu-ray releases. We're just like. <laughs> Like, the, Phoenix's face on the poster, and then underneath it just says, a really good flick. No, it's, it's too pussy. It's in, like, the, uh, it's in, like, the, uh, the olive branches, like, little, quote, uh, parenthesis bar things, and it just <laughs> says, 
really good flick, Chris Duplizzi. But yeah, the only thing I was very uncomfortable with throughout the whole entire movie was him, like, when he was playing the video game, was the guy running, and he was just, like, moving his fingers. Come on, fucker. (laughs) I love love the, the video game scene, but I don't like how he makes the guy run. By, like, just, like, clawing at the air. Things like this. Yeah. I really did not like that. Everything else, though, is really cool. I like the bird shot. I think we all know what the bird shot is. What's the bird shot? What you know, the bird, shot? the bird shot where he's sitting down and then the owl is coming out of the screen behind him. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes, yes. That is quite cool. You guys know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about now. He's sitting on that stoop, and then there's, like, a screen going on behind him, and he's just sitting there, and then there's a giant bird coming off the screen, and it looks like the bird is about to just snatch him up. I don't remember that scene. Very I remember. Very I know, because it stuck out to me when I saw it, too. I don't know what you're talking about. It's been, it's been at least... This is a really good flick. Mm. Great flick. It was a, it was a really good great, flick. It is a great flick. Um, still not remember, a huge like, fan of Scarlett Johansson's voice, oh but God. that's just me. I'm you sorry. Are you are talking about ASMR. Yeah, honestly. I need you to go watch The Man Who Wasn't There and re- go and rechange your opinion about Scarlett Johansson. Uh, oh, no. I like her as an actress. I just, I'm not a fan of her voice. Oh, you if it's like, strictly her voice. Do you like, like Scarlett Johansson? Dude, she's so fucking good as fucking Black Widow, dude. She's so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. No. Big Avengers fan, though. What? What? <laughs> Great flick. Great flick. Honestly, Infinity War was a fantastic flick. Shut up. It was, dude. Infinity War was great. That yeah. Was where, that's where I gave up. And <laughs> Endgame was a visual masterpiece. Oh, my gosh. Oh, uh, my gosh. I, a close friend of mine, shout out Tyler, if you listen to this. Semi, I'm sure he does. Uh, and he does. <laughs> sent me a tweet of some person who was like a marketing person with like a blue check mark on Twitter who had said that Endgame was the greatest achievement in human culture ever. And, <laughs> and I'll just be, you know, at work or around the house, you know, just hanging out and it'll just pop into my head occasionally that someone said that. And I just, I get yeah, sad. Do you remember, yeah. Do you remember the Renaissance? Fuck that. Michelangelo, <laughs> Sistine Chapel. Fuck that. Endgame. I mean, I'd like to see Michelangelo make Endgame, but, like, whatever. <laughs> we made this thing called the automobile and then changed transportation forever? Stupid. Fuck that. Purple Thanos. Best in human culture. Yeah, remember when we went to the moon? <laughs> oh, remember when Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity? What a fucking loser. I'm sorry, guys, but Tony Stark's, uh, Tony Stark's goatee. You come back as some of me. I'll throw something back. Get this guy off the air. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, what'd you watch this week? Well, you've been sitting over there talking trash about uh, 2019 films, and I just want to say that you're wrong. Oh, I watched great. Pretty, some pretty great ones this week. Give it to me. Well, I declared it the best film of 2019. Probably a couple months ago, so I rewatched it to make sure that uh, these were not just bold claims that I made. And um, no, I was right. Her Smell is still the greatest film of 2019. Elizabeth Moss is amazing. Um, so 
Okay, so it's, this this started as last Friday. I left work at 10 a.m. I had the rest of the day off. I come home. I'm eating a nice 10.30 a.m. breakfast. I'm thinking to myself, what do I want to watch to pass the time? And I was like, you know what? I've uh, I've been meaning to give us another chance. You know, like, I, I'll give it another shot. I watched the first half of Us while I ate my breakfast. I listened to the second half while I rearranged some Blu-rays. And then I thought to myself, wow, I really hate this movie. <laughs> 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 and then I was like, you know what? Elizabeth Moss is a tour de force as an actress. And she's severely misused in this film. I need to do her some justice before I am this day. So I watched her smell. And she gives the greatest performance of the year. Who could possibly only be topped by Natalie Portman. Oh, gosh. At some point this year. When's her movie come out? November, I think. Oh, yeah, I forget the title of it. But it's the space one? Yeah. Another fucking space movie. Like, you're not excited for Ad Astra. Ad Astra is going to be the best film of whatever year comes out. <laughs> James Gray is the most underrated like filmmaker there is. Wait, isn't James Gray doing 1917? That's no, Sam Mendes. Mendes is doing yeah. 1917. Tommy Lee Jones is in another... Isn't, uh, there, isn't there some insane thing about 1917 where there's like this crazy long action sequence in one take or something like that? It's edited the same way Birdman was, where the whole film is intended to look as though it was one shot. But it is not. Hmm. Hmm. We shall see how this works out. Like that, I think that's literally in the description of the movie. I've been excited to see her smell, too. I, you know, I've been interested in getting into like Alex Ross Perry's stuff. I haven't actually seen any of his films yet but i've weirdly enough heard him on a couple different podcasts and his sort of you know interest in like literary work as far as it like relates to his film makes me think that i'd like his stuff he was just on uh wtf so it was really good listen to that and it was great sorry zach continue with her smell though sorry um i'm excited for the soundtrack to be released because the soundtrack's very good it's I love, like, the structure where it's literally, it is just five scenes. And, like, these five scenes just play out over an extended period of time. And, like, the final scene is, like, she's supposed to be sober. And then you really get to call into question where, like, is she? I don't know. And then she sings the song where literally the lyrics are, like, I don't want to quit. I just want to be in control of it. And it's like, it hits, it hits you real hard, Chris. Hmm. I'm feeling it right now, just from this conversation. No, it hits, mm-hmm. it hits you real good. Quick question. Is there a reason it's called Her Smell? As in... It's just, is, like, it's just they're like a grungy 90s band. Like, oh, that was the name of the band. No, the name of the band is something she... But like, Her Smell really just fits that scene. Because like, they're not really like... They're in, like, back rooms and, like, grungy, gross, dusty, like, clubs, like, bars and shit. So they could have called it Her Stank. 
It could have, but she's not an <laughs> R&B rapper. She's a she's a front lady. I still feel like that's a missed opportunity. She's not like a backup dancer for uh, Fergie, Young Jock. No, she's <laughs> she's not like a stand-in for Ja Rule and Ashanti. Like she's oh man, she's oh, a lady man. with talent. I just wanna, I just wanna. <laughs> A movie to be called Her Stank. I'm going to make one. Well, if that is your aspirations in life, feel free. <laughs> it's going to be better than Her Smell. <laughs> well, I took, a, I took a page out of Zach's playbook this week and tried to reevaluate the films that I watched. I only wanted to watch, you know, things that had merit. So I watched a good, I watched a little flick, Chris, by the name of The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot. Oh, I want to watch that so bad. <laughs> You're not missing anything. It's fucking awful. I don't believe you. It well, stars you... Sam Elliott. It can't be awful. You should believe me. So aside from Bohemian Rhapsody, it's got some of the weirdest editing I've seen in a long time. So the movie's only like an hour and a half. And the idea of Bigfoot isn't introduced until like 45 minutes into it. And then what's stranger is like there's no recognition that like wait, the Bigfoot's not real. This isn't a real mission. It's, like, totally accepted as, like, this is a real thing. Bigfoot and then and then Samfoot, like, like Sam Elliott, like, tells his brother, and his brother's so, like, the exact same thing. He's like, oh, no. Like, what are you going to do? Not like, wait, Bigfoot? Like, you're for real? You're, you're hunting the Bigfoot? It's, like, completely accepted as real? Um, and then, so it goes from this scene... Where it's what, Chris? I was just saying this guy doesn't believe in Bigfoot. No, I believe in Bigfoot. It's it just it's just a very weird like little thing in it. It's it's odd. Whereas because Sam Elliott's character is not seen as the kind of guy that'd be like, no, I'm totally into Bigfoot and I'm totally gonna hunt him for you. It's just weird. And then there's this like, this incredibly weird editing where like he's like, okay, I accept the mission. So, so, okay, I guess I'll say the premise is Sam Elliott plays this guy by the name of Calvin Barr who secretly killed Adolf Hitler in World War II, but it was covered up to look like something else. And so Germany and America, like, covered it up. <clears throat> so he kind of just, like, goes about life kind of being, like, this great hero, but no one really knows it. And so he gets approached by these military guys that Bigfoot – has this disease that's spreading to different life forms and if he if he's not contained it'll wipe out like a human race essentially so there's this really weird like editing sequence where it goes from like sam elliott accepting the mission like picking his weapons and like he's standing at the edge of the forest it cuts to black and then it immediately cuts into sam elliott's looking down the scope of his gun at bigfoot shooting it and then there's like this chase ensues through the woods but it's like bigfoot's literally only in the movie for like 15 minutes <laughs> sounds like my kind of movie it's like really weird and like I mean, the look the look of bigfoot it's very reminiscent of the apes in 2001 a space odyssey sick well i was about to say i'm even surprised they were able to get 15 minutes of footage of bigfoot because like so far all we've got is one photo. So. That's true. 
So the fact they got him to cooperate this long is pretty amazing. And by this no-name writer-director, too. True that. Um, it's a very strange movie. Like, most of the movie, honestly, just reminds me of Manglehorn, where it's a guy trying to, like... Oh, so it's a piece tr- of garbage? Trying to come... That's what I said. Trying to come to terms with, um, like, this love that he let go in his life. And then randomly they shoehorn in Bigfoot for like 15 minutes. It's very odd. How should every movie? But Chris, you might you might be right up your alley. It's it's still a movie that I was planning on watching just because it seems so absurd. Well, it's on Hulu, so check it out. It's, it's one of those things when it comes to like trashy movies like that, I feel like they have to be so... You have to go so much harder over the top for them to be fun. Like if you're not operating at like Kung Fury level, then those it then those movies oftentimes don't land. Oh yeah, it does not land. Kung Fury is the talking tongue, right? That's the like thirty minute short uh, where it's um uh where it's this guy named Kung Fury who basically ends up having to go back in time to kill Hitler and it's just like this it is so funny and beyond insane. It was on Netflix for the longest time, but it takes every single trope possible in in you know 80s films, and it just takes it to the furthest extreme, and it's so perfect. And it literally kind of puts a stop to all sort of um, you know parody exploitation films because they do it so insane. It's a 30-minute short, and it was on Netflix for the longest time and might still be there, but definitely want to give that a watch yeah chris do you I'm, think i'm thinking of kung pao enter the fist do you think i enjoyed <laughs> three truck stop women because it was mild-mannered no because <laughs> it's, it's three women motorcycle gains satanic rituals pubic hair the whole nine yards <laughs> Ooh, a little midsummer action there's more to this you listed four things and you said the whole nine yards. There's more to oh, this. There's, there's more to this movie than just <laughs> trucker women and pubic hair. They're motorcycle women. Motorcycle they just happen women. to be at truck stops. Okay. All right. My back. <laughs> Andrew, what else you got for us? Uh, let's see. Uh, stuff I've watched. Um, I started to watch and then didn't finish it, which is, you know, not usual for me. I mean, there's it is usual for me to watch a movie and then have to like watch the rest of it later because I'll be sleepy. Like for example, for a reason I thought it'd be a good idea to watch Close Up by um, Abbas Kurosami at like 1 a.m. the other day, and I was like, this is becoming way too meta and it's way too slow for this time of night, so I have to <laughs> pick that up. Uh, but I watched about half of Mother, the Albert Brooks film from uh, the 80s, and then I was just I was bummed because his performance was so great. Like he's Albert Brooks is, you know, an amazing actor, but then it just didn't the humor in it just felt so dated in a way that didn't sell that I had to I had to tap out of that. Um I'm trying to think. Other things I've been watching. Um not something I've been watching, but as a you know, most excited on my list, however, is you know, A24 just released the first uh, promo photo from 
Uncut Gems, and they finally announced that that's getting its uh, per, its premiere at TIFF. So that's basically taking all taking all of my of my attention right now. That. I mean, Lighthouse is very up there stuff I'm anticipated for, but I'm just waiting every day for the Uncut Gems trailer. I remember you talking about Uncut Gems even way back when we were discussing Vice and uh, House of Jack built. So yeah, I mean. The Safety Brothers, when I when I saw Good Time, it completely changed everything for me, and so I did an immediate deep dive into all of their work right afterwards. And now it's by and large my number one most anticipated for sure. I'm with him now. Adam Sandler's in it. <laughs> no, I'm excited to see Adam Sandler okay. in this role. Oh, it's gonna it's gonna be great. I'm definitely. Uh, I'm definitely an Adam Sandler defender because if you watch Punch Drunk Love, you know that if the right person's directing, even the Meyerowitz stories, you know he's got the chops, and if he's got the right person behind him, he can, yeah, you know, he can deliver. Yeah, I think any actor has the potential. It really just comes down to who's really? like who's directing and any actor. Russell yeah. Brand with the right Michael director, Madsen. Michael Madsen. Who yeah, baby, you, Tar- Tarantino, baby, he's found his home. Who would you pair Russell Brand with to make him a tolerable actor? Wes Anderson. Um, oh, interesting choice. I, I would pair him with Jonah Hill, and they should make a movie where he's like a <laughs> rock star, and like Jonah Hill plays this guy where he's trying to recruit him to get this big concert back you know, and going for like this. It could be like it could be something as simple as just like say uh oh i don't know a reunion concert for like an old album like that would be pretty incredible i think you've got a billion dollar idea right here (laughs) pretty Um, close i think his sort of wild energy though would be like perfect if it was sort of constricted into you know that like flat wes anderson world i think it would be definitely it would be unexpected and they would bring a different kind of level of humor to it to Seeing Russell Brand forced to be in such a, a a plain type of role, you know, like Moonrise <laughs> Kingdom, but instead of Edward Norton, it's Russell Brand. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, speaking of actors who can't be good with any director, that brings thinking of things that I've watched. Uh, Miles Teller cannot do anything right. I Whiplash. So Whiplash, I love the film. Like his performance is still just not great, but that film is so works on every level so much that it is. But then watching the new Refn series, Too Old to Die. No, Out, don't don't tell me bad things. About I watched this. the first episode <laughs> and I thought I was being pranked. It felt like a parody <laughs> of Refn. It is. I'm sorry. I love a lot of his movies. Drive. Bronson, Neon Demon. Are actually, to be honest, I, I kind of like Only God Forgives a lot. I know that's uh, an unpopular opinion, but I think for the most part, his films are really good. This feels like a parody of his stuff, and I'm sorry, but I cannot watch a camera just stare at Miles Teller for 45 seconds. There are plenty of actors who can do that. You know, Joaquin Phoenix, you, know, you can put a camera on him for you know 15 minutes, and it'll be fine. Miles Teller does not have the gravitas to just stand there under a neon light and just have the camera on him for <laughs> that. I was 
beyond uh, disappointed in that first episode. I do got to say, I got to give props to the usage of gravitas. That was a very <laughs> impressive vocabulary. Like, did he, like, it didn't even look like he had to dig deep for that. It was just ready at his disposal. I'm impressed. Thank write, you. That, write that one down in your book, Chris. It's, I'm, I'm going to have to put it in for tomorrow. Make a point to use gravitas one time. And then definitely yep. use it next week's show. I'm going to be on my ride home, and I'm just going to be like, Gravitas. Gravitas. <laughs> Zach, what else did you watch this week? Well, Chris mentioned that he watched her. So I watched something also directed by Spike Jones. This is the new Aziz Ansari stand-up special. What? what? And... I think this is the best looking stand special I've ever seen in my entire life. And shot on film, which is <laughs> just <laughs> insane. They shot a, a comedy special on film. And you get to the end of this, end of the special, and you're just like, God damn it, Spike Jones, just make another fucking movie. Like <laughs> wasting your time with a Zizan sorry. Exactly. I've been I've been like Spike, just leave leave Vice. Stop all this nonsense. And, like, I don't care how movie. much money Apple is paying you to make their monopod commercials. <laughs> Stop it right now. Um, as far as the stand-up special, it sounds a lot like the jokes someone would write a year and a half after they were accused of sexual misconduct. <laughs> so, I like how they, he ditched the, the, the suit, though. Let, he's wearing a Metallica t-shirt. Yeah, so what? He's, he's trying to recreate his image. Like, if, if there was ever an opportunity to do so, I feel this is it. I, I agree. I like that he takes like, the first 10 minutes of the special to reckon with the accusations against him. And he talks openly about it. But at the same time, like you watch one of his other specials. And like he references like the R. Kelly jokes he made. Those R. Kelly jokes are funny. Like... Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really think I laughed in the special because it just seems like while he makes fun of warriors, he at the same time is tiptoeing a very fine line as to not offend them too. Because he kind of is a social justice warrior. I know. I liked Master of None, but his stand-up has never really landed for me. Like they're two different things. When Master of None is so much more tame. Like, it's a lot more controlled and it's a lot more in-depth than what his normal stand-up comedy is. When he does, like, after, like, Funny People, right, he does his first stand special and he does, like, an entire routine as Randy. And it's just, like... <laughs> oh, my God. Funny. But, like, I, I've always found his stand-up... The stand-up bit after that, two, I thought it was really good. I found his first two specials to be funny. Like, not... Like, when he has that bit about, like, Ja Rule raiding chicken farms. Oh, and, like, yeah. that's funny. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But this was all just, like... Oh, like, there was a funny part where he's, like, uh, talking about crazy rich Asians. And he's, like... Oh, yeah. He's, like, oh, man, like, it's a 98% rotten tomatoes. Like, that's, that's crazy. He's, like, who in the audience has seen crazy rich Asians? And this girl raises her hand. He's, like, what would... You, a 98%? Like, would you really say it's a, it's a 98? She was, like, no. He's, like, well, what would you say? And he's, like... She's like, like an 85, he's like, mm, 13% less. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting on Master of None Season 3. I don't think you're going to get it. I know, Netflix wants to do it, but he's not going to cooperate. I mean, he's smart not to do it. 
Oh, come on, man. It's a smart move to not do it. Given how they ended season two, it's a perfect opportunity I, I get for him story- to talk about how he relates to it, though. I get story-wise, like, there are places it can go. But for Aziz Ansari, personally, he needs to essentially distance himself from everything that he was. I don't think you need to distance yourself. I just feel like you need to handle that delicately until you get to an opportunity where you can bring it in another like, direction. Like, pe- people are already mad that he got a stand-up special, like, on Netflix. Like, there are people They're that mad are, about that? There are people that are mad about that, that he's being given a platform. Oh, and it's like, he, he did what he was supposed to do. He laid low for a very long time. He released a special where he basically says... I'm sorry. Let's go through all the terrible jokes I made, and I will apologize for them. Yeah. And then we can just move forward from here. Give sounds me like what. A, I want. Sounds like Aziz Ansari is done for. Just give me what I want. I don't care about them. I care about me. I want Master of None season three. I know you're listening, Aziz. I know you are. Give me what I want. Uh, um. So let's see. So completely different than. Aziz Ansari stand-up. I watched a film by Park Chan-wook that I've been meaning to watch for a long time called The Handmaiden. That's not really that different. That's true. That's not that different. Hates women and it's portrayal of things. <laughs> no, it's... So, I've heard a lot of praise about this movie. Andrew, have you seen The Handmaiden? I have not. Okay, I was going to say, I know these two haven't. It's um, for a while, but just oh, somehow. Do else. you know that I haven't seen The Handmaiden? Yeah, I do know you haven't. Have you seen it? Yeah. You haven't seen it? I've seen The Handmaiden. What makes I you think I've seen it? Because it's not in English. Wait. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> do you not watch films that are in English? I like I I like some movies that are. I loved Cold War. You loved Roma. Sure, he did love Cold I War. I loved Cold War, but. You loved Roma more. I have a hard time watching foreign films. It's not that I don't like them. It's just it has to be the right foreign film. You Chris, know? Chris is one of those people that doesn't like to watch movies that were made before he was born. That's not true. Uh, That's not true. I was having a conversation with someone who had told me that they didn't like any old movies because they're just like well you know like everyone's attention spans these days are just like so much shorter and so like you know so many like scenes back then were just longer and just <laughs> i i was suffering from organ failure as it happened this is the stuff in once upon a time in hollywood that Tarantino was right about like the fetish the fetishization of just like the old the, the old process of like taking out a film reel and putting it on your projector to watch a movie. Listen, man, I like foreign people. I like foreign films. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've got okay. some... Okay, I don't know why we needed that disclaimer. <laughs> I don't think anyone here is saying now that you're bringing that into question. No, not what I'm trying to get. I, I like... I like Your Make America Great Again bumper sticker might conflict with those statements. Anybody listening, it's not true. I don't have a MAGA sticker. But it just takes the right foreign film to keep me uh, into it from A, B, C, all the way to Z. It's the same with foreign person, right? No, I can... <laughs> if there if there's a language barrier, then I have a hard time getting to know them. Oh, so you're I saying that if they're like going to come here, they need to learn the language, Chris? I'm not saying <laughs> that. I'm just saying I can like somebody's demeanor, but unless they speak, I have a hard time liking them. Oh, wait, okay, I'm sorry. So do you not like deaf people? 
we can't properly communicate. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the thing. If they're doing American Sign Language, I like their demeanor. They could be a very nice demeanor, but like, unless they could be hand signing that I'm an asshole. For all I know, unless you make, as long as the demeanors, as long as they're really nice about them calling you an asshole, you're fine with it. No, that's what and I'm saying. They're two separate things. I can like somebody's demeanor, but not like them as a person. So you, so just to clarify, you do not like deaf people. <laughs> no, I like. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say I like. Okay, I like people. That's the only blanket statement I'll say. I like people i don't know if i like somebody until i've had a conversation with them so i can't say whether i like deaf people or not because i can't converse with them i don't know american sign language they could be great they could be dickheads like as individuals there's lots to unpack there Oh, we're about to be shut down next week. This will be the last episode of Film and Loathing. Okay. That's all I'm saying. They could be great people. They could not be. I'm just saying... I don't know them. The Confederate flag painted on top of your car like the General Lee calls (laughs) your character into question. Again, that's not true. I like how you keep saying they as if they're just all grouped together and you got to interview them as a group. (laughs) I'm saying I have to interview them as a group. Even as individuals, like... Okay, as a group of people, I cannot communicate with them unless we're writing down on paper. And if they're writing down good things, I like them. It's funny, like, how... <laughs> what? It's funny, like, how in-depth you go to defend yourself, but, like, literally none of no one in this room thinks people <laughs> people. No, I'm talking to people who are listening right now. All I'm saying is that I don't pass judgment on somebody until I'm able to communicate with them. Until I know about them as a person. I think we can. I, I think that's pretty universal. Is this? Is am I being unethical here? I think you're just saying what everybody else feels, man. Oh my fucking gosh! So another film that I'm really excited about <laughs> is uh, when I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They had a trailer for Where'd You Go, Bernadette, and so that was a film I definitely been following since it was announced because you know Linklater. It's never done wrong by me. I cannot share the same sentiment. I'm not looking forward to where you go, Bernadette. Um, but Chris, I can definitely speak for certain that you would not like The Handmaiden. Not just because of its... Not because it's just in Korean. That's right. That's right. But because I think... I don't think you would find the story all that interesting. And nudity makes you uncomfortable. And nudity makes you uncomfortable. Um, so the stories, so the story is about this con man who wants to marry this incredibly, or wants to con this woman into marrying him, so that he can then commit her to a, an insane asylum and take her fortune. And so, what? Based on his judgment, based on his actions, he's a dick. There you go. I, I can now judge him since I know something about him. So he hires a thief to um, to work as this woman's handmaiden. And so essentially he's going to try to woo her. And then behind closed doors, he wants this girl that he's hired to sort of like speak in good favor to her and c- convince her to marry him. 
And so the story is told in three parts. And in each part, there's something that's sort of revealed about each person that kind of totally changes like what you think about each character and kind of changes the direction of the film. Um, I'm not trying to, I don't want to give too much away because I don't want to spoil it for Andrew since I know he'll, he'll want to see it one of these days. <clears throat> Definitely. Um, but I guess just overall, I'll say I did like it. I didn't think it was amazing as a lot of people were saying it was. Um, I think mostly it just comes down to the story and by the end it becomes kind of convoluted to the point that I just didn't really care anymore about what was happening. Um, there is a very great sequence at the end though um, with a guy being tortured a little bit and I won't say any more but I did say it. I thought that was quite good. Um, the score is amazing. I would probably even listen to that score just as, on its own. It's beautiful. Um, I think the cinematography is quite good. It looks amazing on Baby Blue. Um, but I do think it is. I do think it is a little long. Uh, I think it's at like two hours and twenty something minutes. Um, I think there's like a two a two o five maybe two ten version in this to cut it down a little bit, trim off some of the fat. Um, but this. I, Maybe it could make the top 50. Maybe. It'd be bottom. It'd be in the bottom of the list for sure. But What year was it? Uh, did it come out? 2016. Nailed it. So you have seen it, Zach. I thought I would talk to you a little bit ago, and you said you like owned it, but hadn't watched it yet. Could be true for that moment in time. Oh, but you have since seen it. I thought you hadn't seen The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, you're confusing. You're You're combining things now. That'd be like if Elizabeth Moss was an Asian lady. I have no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> uh, so another, uh, speaking of, you know, mentioned top 50 or so, what is everyone's thoughts so far of number one of the decade? Twin Peaks to return? <clears throat> Don't do it. Do not even fucking do it. I will lose my shit. So hold the dark. <laughs> I'm fine so, with Hold the Dark. At least it's a film. I, you know, Lynch is, you know, very near and dear to my heart. One of my favorites. And I think that Twin Peaks to Return is, you know, one of the greatest achievements in art so far. But I can't, I, I can't in good conscience say that it's a movie. So I will, this ties into what we've been watching, right? Because I started, I re-wa- I'm re-watching Twin Peaks gearing up for to watch Twin Peaks to Return in one sitting. That's all great. Eight, I've done all it. 18 hours? All 18 hours. Oh. Just just take a day off from work and just fucking boom. Just just watch it. Oh, I've really. done it before and it's a great experience. And so okay. 18 hours of David Lynch sounds exhausting to me. So I think if oh I can God. successfully <laughs> put, watch in one sitting I can put it on the list. That's no, no, no. And so, let's just say, for starters, David Lynch has said it himself that it is an 18-hour film. Okay, no, no, it's, I'm done. I will also say this. Uh, he is very specific to not say... It, there is no episodes. It is part. It's part one, part two. No, this is splitting hairs. This is, this is not it. It was released once a week. 
with end credits, with opening and end credits in a serialized format. Look, I <laughs> Thank love... You. Thank you, Andrew. Let's, let, you let can me... call it a mini-series, maybe, if you want, but to call it a film would Here's... be completely rewriting the entire <laughs> definition of what a movie is. That's like saying Band of Brothers is a movie. Here is the deciding factor for me. When he delivered it to Showtime, he delivered it as one 18-hour thing, and they cut it up. They they cut it into 18 segments, and he wanted to show it in theaters, but they wouldn't pay for it. I would have been there opening day. If if they had shown it, I would have 100% gotten to theater at 7 in the morning. But that doesn't change the fact that its exhibition was as a TV show. Now, is it the greatest thing to ever happen in TV? Yes, yes. by a million miles. But <laughs> and believe me, I love Lynch more than almost any other director. But it is not a movie. If it was top fifty visual media, put number one. We said it was the top fifty movies of the decade. Let me ask you this: Are you will OJ Made in America be appearing on your list? Yes. Yes. It, they had a theater Whoa, exhibition. Motherfucker. It, it had a theater <laughs> exhibition. It was released in five parts on ESPN. On ESPN, but it had a it had a full length from start to finish, five hours in theater. I'm sorry. I'm if I, I think not neither one of them are movies. I get one best. If Twin Peaks Return was I do not care. If it was shown in a theater with all all parts went together without the credits, then it would count as a movie. Okay. But there is I no count that. I, I would count that. If I rent out a theater, <laughs> if I rent out a theater at Bangor Mall Cinema Ten, and I for one day I put Twin Peaks to Return and I project it onto the screen and watch it, I can I can count that. No, of course not. If I went and <laughs> if I if I went and did the same thing with an episode of The Wire. That doesn't make it a movie. It has to have been in its original release, its exhibition. As... I'll tell you this. If you, Zach, can single-handedly get the rights to Twin Peaks Return, put it in Bangor Mall Cinemas short for 18 hours, and you sit there and watch the whole thing, put it on your list. I will even re-edit it to only have one opening credit and one closing credit. Yeah, if you if you gain the distribution rights and then do a theater exhibition, then we can count as a movie. I will, I will completely count it. Now, I definitely want to reiterate, it is the greatest thing to ever happen on television of all time. Like, I will definitely stand by that. the first season of Scandal. I don't know. <laughs> Point taken. Uh, but, but if we're talking best of decade, it is 100% for me, you know, by a million miles going to the master. The master, okay. Uh, I think for me right now, I'm leaning towards potentially the killing of a sacred deer. That's a great choice for sure. I think I'm leaning towards... We all know what you're leaning towards. Man, this is a tough one. Zach's about to say Endgame. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably going to be Black Panther, Chris. Oh, my it's God. It's just such a revolutionary film, you know, all black casts. i give you a round of applause. Marvel, what up, dog? Um, I think it's either that or... 
I know tree the tree of life is up there, but I think I'd have to watch it a few more times to put it as my number one. Fine, True Detective season one. That's from of the decade. <laughs> You've been you're receiving a penalty mute for the next forty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect opportunity then to to say if uh, if there's anything else that you've watched, Andrew, that you want to share with the listeners. Um, so, so explicitly saying that this is not a movie and I haven't finished it yet, but I recently watched the first few episodes of the assassination of Gianni Versace, which they put on Netflix. And I have been very much in love with it. It's, I have never really watched, um, American horror story or, you know, the other spinoff shows like American crime story. I've seen a few episodes when like old roommates and stuff would be watching it, but, um, my girlfriend convinced me to watch this with her and I was floored immediately it has such a perfect visual style. And it's so just, it's so overly confident that makes you want to watch you know, the other things. I think I'm going to watch pose next. And cause I sort of, I don't know. American horror story never really appealed to me, but now I kind of want to see what Ryan Murphy's about because I've been really intrigued by it so far. I think the first season of American horror story is great. Uh, did you did you watch the OJ one? I did not watch the OJ one. I've heard great things about that one. What's uh, up, Chris? No, I'm just listening to you guys. I got nothing to say about Ryan Murphy. All right, Cyclops. So what's your top of the decade? Uh, my lips are sealed. Because he's going to try to work away to put Google Hunting. <laughs> Google Hunting will always be my uh, my number one of the decade. Are you remaining silent because you don't you haven't seen enough movies to get number one? Fifty movies in the my, last decade. My list is just gonna be what it is. And he's he's beating around the bush, but we all it's know it's Silver cool. Linings playbook. No, 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 no. I can guarantee you it's not that. I can think of no. five movies off the top of my head right now that I enjoyed and are better than Silver Linings Playbook of this decade. But Wolf as of right now, my no, no. Wolf Wall Street, absolutely. My uh, my lips are sealed. That's top on what my number sure. one is. Um, mm-hmm. something that was um a big, so like I said, the masters you know probably by like a thousand miles between every other film. But if that were not a consideration, it would be a tough choice between what the other ones. And I think what's going to definitely be in the top five is Tony Erdman. That's a film that. I was absolutely floored with my son in the theaters, and then every subsequent rewatch, it just gets better and better. I for that's German film, right? Yeah, the one where uh, the guy has a workaholic daughter, and then so to sort of reconnect with her, he becomes her CEO's life coach, and it's just insanely dry and super funny and just very absurd. It's like three hours long, but it's a perfect film. Sounds like I've heard good things about it. Honestly. Well, Jacob, I can tell you what's not my number one film of the decade. Go for it. It is a, I suppose, technically a two-part movie, but that is one whole. It's a very, it's a Kill Bill situation, Chris, if you will. <coughs> uh, directed by the man, the myth, the Lars von Trier, uh, Nymphomaniac. Oh. And I will say, I enjoyed part one immensely yep very much enjoy part one mm-hmm. i think part two is borderline terrible mm-hmm. preach it sister 
you know, I love the Stellan Skarsgård nudity, but just where it ends, like, it is so out of place for that character. Like, what we have seen for four hours... Makes no sense. It makes... It literally is the dumbest thing he could have done. I can't comment because I didn't finish it, but that might be a comment in itself. (laughs) Yeah, it's it sucks. I hate part two. Like I love where part one ends, where like she no longer has like feeling, and like that. Well, I was like, I wanted to watch part two immediately to figure out like what happens, but then just like where it goes is just like really cliche volunteer stuff that he gets criticized for all the time. Mm-hmm. Just like, I don't know, like, I don't want to analyze it too much because, like, you know, he's very well known for, like, laughing at people that try to look too deeply, like, into his movies. But, like, it's a very bleak, like, relationship movie. Where it's just, like, they don't matter. Just give in to your carnal desires at all time. And it's just, like, I don't, like I like Charlotte Gainsbourg, like she's good, but I think the girl who plays her in her younger years is much better. Yep. And, like, like you can see, I can just say I'm glad this is not the last his last movie, like he said it was going to be, and like you get a lot of that house that Jack built style of like stock footage and all the crazy analogies to things and like that stuff I like quite a bit. I love the fly fishing bit, but like. I I even like, you know, the setup of like he finds this girl and she, he continually like justifies her saying how terrible she is, and like he continues to find justifications for her actions even when she can't, and so like there, there's some interesting things in there. I think the most interesting part is when she recounts her like the time she just runs runs into Shia LaBeouf after years. And he says, like, I, I don't believe that this happened. And she says, well, is it more compelling if you believe me or if you don't? And then I think from that point on, you sort of have to question, like, what she is saying. Mm-hmm. For sure. But I think part two is just, like, her being, like, beaten and, like, wanting to be beaten is weird. And, like... And that whole thing that they were diverse with, like, the scam thing she runs or whatever it is. That was just so weird. And then the scene where, like, she is trying to rob from that guy and, like, makes him hard by talking about, like, how he wants to molest children. And it's just, like, it's the most uncomfortable thing. And I am not a fan. No. I hated part two. So what would you give the whole experience? Like part one and two, let's say it's combined as he intended. What would you give the whole thing? Three and a half. It's about where I am. Because part one, I, I, I do think part one is fantastic. Like, I loved Uma Thurman. Yep. I don't think... Like, I didn't think the first part was, like, nearly as graphic or anything as, like, I thought it was going to be or it had been built up to me. Well, but I, I mean, guess, like, part there's, two... There's, a, there's a, a pretty nice dick montage. Hmm. For sure. But, like, part two is where it kind of go- gets derailed. Yeah. And, like, I guess there's shit in, like, the extended version that, like, you don't see in this that's even more fucked up. 
I, I really have no interest in seeing that. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's weird where in 2009, Lars von Trier makes a movie in which, you know, a man ejaculates blood. And you're mm-hmm. like, this is definitely the worst it's going to get. And then he's like, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's three other movies that are go even further. <laughs> uh, let's see. All right. Well, I watched a movie from 2014, directed by Dan Gilroy, starring Jakey G. <clears throat> Velvet Buzzsaw. And it is Velvet Buzzsaw. Just kidding, Chris. It's Nightcrawler. Um, and I actually like Nightcrawler quite a bit. Um, I like Jake Gyllenhaal's performance uh, quite a bit. Um, I kind of like that awkward, sort of straightforward character. Where, though, I mean, I think there are some scenes in the movie where, like, that doesn't necessarily work. But I think for a lot of it, it does. Um, and to be honest, the first, I, I completely forgot about the ending in the last 20 minutes. And I think that ending kind of saves the movie a little bit. I think it kind of begins to like dip off a little bit. Like once he's kind of found success and you're just spending time with that Rick guy that works for him. Um, I don't know if that's not necessarily always works, but like once you get to the end where it's them filming the robbery, and then the fallout from that and what happens. Um, I like that stuff quite a bit. Um, his plan to sort of follow those guys and set them up to get this amazing story, like I don't I think it's I think that plan in itself is kind of ridiculous. But in terms of like what <clears throat> like what the movie is going for, um, in terms of like willing to do anything to get ahead. Um, I think that fits his character quite a bit, and I'm willing to suspend some disbelief for a second just to how it plays out. Um, but all in all, I liked it. I'm, um, I think it's great. I like Jake Gyllenhaal in it quite a bit. Could be one of his better performances for sure. I haven't seen it since I saw it in theaters, and I remember being not entirely sold on it, but I have been meaning to revisit it. Didn't he only blink like 12 times in the movie or something? There is no way that's true. I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it only blinks like 12 times in the movie, dude. I wasn't keeping track. <clears throat> I will bet $5,000 right now that is not true. <laughs> but, like, looking at his performance, like, looking at him and do all that jazz, like, he doesn't blink a lot. No, it's, like, definitely <clears throat> played very straight, but I don't know if it's if he's not blinking. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it again. I'm gonna count. Do it. You you watch it again. Um, it's one thing that was felt kind of odd for me. Like I don't know why I'm willing to forgive a lot of other films for doing this and not this one. But there's a montage that happens right in like the middle point that kind of just like accelerates his success. So you see like the progression of him getting a new camera that ultimately culminates in him driving this amazing car. Um, and I don't know why it bothers me that that was all rushed through to get a little bit more established. Like, it seems like that's just a common thing that films do. You just have, like, a montage that gets across some information. Um, well, why... Four hours long. 
Well, yeah, well, like, why? Maybe it's just because it's only the one, and it's not like it's that long, so I wish I could have felt like I could have just spent a little bit more time unfolding things a little bit more naturally, maybe reworking a little bit of it to get it all in there, plus have your ending. Um, I don't know, very minor, just more something to point out for the sake of talking about it than anything that really detracts from the movie or would affect my enjoyment of it. <clears throat> Andrew, anything else for you? I need to think about what some of the other stuff I've seen. Um, uh, I recently rewatched um, Modern Times, the Charlie Chaplin film, and every time it's just always perfect. I've oh, so, not seen a Charlie Chaplin film. Speaking, this just reminded me of so not quite a, not quite a film, but something that I saw an excerpt of. Last time I went home uh, to visit my parents, it was my sister's high school graduation. And uh, while I was there, because they're in, the, in Virginia, in the D.C. area, I went to uh, the Hirshhorn Museum of Art, which is this great modern art museum in D.C. And while I was there, they had this um, exhibit that had this series of documentaries by, I'm not even going to pronounce this director's name because I don't want to butcher it, but it's the... This is a director who made Uncle Boon Me, who can see his past lives. Oh, I can never fucking get that guy's name right. Yeah. Don't they just call him, like, Mike or something? You would think. He has a super long last name, but it's... uh, Yeah, he has these, like, sort of... uh, These documentaries starting the exhibit that are really cool, and there's just sort of these, like, very intimate, like, family life things. I was with... uh, I was with my mom and my sister, so I wasn't able to watch more than a few minutes of it because, you know, they were, like, you know, three hours long, but it was, uh, you know, it was definitely fascinating seeing the imageries and stuff. So that was, you know, a highlight of something I've seen recently. Wait, so you watched Uncle Boon Me or a documentary about him? So there were documentaries that he made. Oh, so, okay, but, yeah. But same director who did Uncle Boon Me, uh, okay. where he had these few... Uh, uh, documentaries that are part of this exhibit. Okay, I got you. Zach? Shit. We know you watched, we know you watched Synecdoche. I did. But that's not what I'm going to tell you about. Um, I watched... I rewatched actually. Richard Linklater's uh, 2013 masterpiece entitled Before Midnight. And the third film in the Before trilogy. And they just get better and better. And this Before Midnight, I would say, is a perfect movie. And that's all I want to say. So go watch it if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, you're an idiot. Finally... Uh, back to, uh, I'm trying to refute your statements here that 2019 has been a bad year for film, because I don't agree. So I watched a film from this year called The Souvenir, directed by Joanna Hogg. Oh, yeah, I haven't wanted to watch that. And so it's a semi-autobiographical tale about a young film student, young lady, who gets, um, into a relationship with an older man who has some mysterious secrets about him 
And there is a scene in the movie, and it becomes very obvious what those secrets are. And the movie, like, it's, she talks a lot about, like, in interviews about, like, these are all based upon memories that, like, she has. And that's sort of what the movie feels like, where it's sort of, it gets, like, the scene of them, like, meeting, you don't see, like, it literally, like, you cut to a scene where, like, they kind of already know each other. And, like, you're sort of, like, you're sort of constantly piecing together, like, what is happening. And it sort of just goes in and out of, like, different scenes like memories would. And so it, it stars Tilda Swinton as the mother. And then Tilda Swinton's daughter is in the movie as a younger version of Joanna Hogg. And it's just... I read the reviews on Letterboxd of this movie, and, like, it's being reviewed very poorly by users. They're saying, oh, this movie's so boring. And it just, a piece of me dies each time I read something like that. It's fabulous. And then the real kicker here, Jacob, this is where it gets you. At the very end of the credits, right, it says part two coming soon. So we're going to get more of this. Oh. Can't wait. Interesting. And when you when you finally get to see this movie, and you get to see the wonderful exteriors, or sorry, interiors that are there, and the set design, I want you to remember this small tidbit, which is that they found an abandoned airplane hangar and they built it all. Really? They built it all inside of this airplane hangar. That's exciting. So when you see that she's inside her apartment. She's in an airplane hangar. Just know it's an airplane hangar. Something uh, that something that occurred to me of a film. Speaking of stuff that we've rewatched recently, uh, within the last week or a half or so, I had probably my God, at this point seventeenth, eighteenth uh, rewatch of No Country for Old Men. You know, a Ooh. movie, a movie that Classic. I know, you know, forward and backwards and everything. I just. Uh, I was doing a I was doing a photo shoot and we were doing some projector stuff messing with it and one of the things we did was we were using shots from No Country for Old Men as to project over the model as we were photographing her and then like basically everyone in the room uh, after a bit was like oh yeah we need to go and rewatch this and so we all so we all individually like on our own just went and rewatched it you know and it still remains one of those movies that you know I've seen it. A million times I've read the book, you know, a 10, 15 times. If I see even a scene from it, it's like, all right, I have to go and watch it. I do like No Country for Old Men. It's probably been like three years since I've seen it. I watched it last year and loved it just as much as I did from earlier viewings. That one, I think I need to do like a double bill where I rewatch. No Country for Old Men, and There Will Be Blood. Yeah, that's a that's a hefty day, but that would be... Oh, it's no worse than the 18-hour you're about to pull for Twin Peaks to return. That's different. I will be a changed man. Well, I think what you would... I think what you would actually do with the No Country for Old Men one is I would round it out with the other Oscar films of that year and also throw in Zodiac and... Um, Fuck, why am I um, 
the assassination of um, oh yeah that's, of that's Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford because all four of those movies are all in the same year and it's kind of uh, unfathomable at this point to think that one year could have that many great movies. Well, makes sense. It's all been downhill from there. Yeah, kind of. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be complete, to be completely honest, the only year that's come in comparison to 2007 is probably 2017, if you're actually thinking about it, because that was because that was the year that Good Time, Phantom Thread, Call Me by Your Name, Killing of a Sacred Deer. And the Florida Project all came out, if I've got that all correct. And yeah, so, no, I think that was all 2017. Yeah, so whatever year that was has been the only year since 2007 that we've had that many sort of amazing films in one year. I'm going to prove that wrong in just one second. Here we go. Well, uh, I <clears throat> like Infinity War came out. That and, counts. like, there was, the you know, like, Thor Ragnarok. Well, while Chris does his useless research, <clears throat> just something to keep him busy for the show, I watched... Thor <clears throat> I'm done. You're I'm done? Marvel, I finished it. I did it. I, I, I've completed it. I, I saw uh, Spider-Man. I'm done. You're going cold turkey? I'm going I was done a long time ago. <laughs> I will see Thor Love and Thunder because I love Taika Waititi and I just want to know how much money they threw at Natalie Portman to get her to come back. And like, I just want to potentially that. like franchise her as Lady Thor. Anywho, while Chris does his research, I will talk about. I watched uh, The Tree of Life, directed by Terrence Malick. Perfect movie. And I will say that watching The Tree of Life has now got me very interested in watching more Terrence Malick films. Particularly, I'd like to go. I would like to revisit uh, uh, Badlands, Days of Heaven, Thin Red Line. Night of Cups. Days of Heaven is if if I were to get really deep into it, is oftentimes top three favorite of all time. I've heard a lot of high praise for Days of Heaven. I think a lot of people consider it one of his best films, too. It is. I would go on a limb to say that it is one of, if not the best-looking movie of all time. Just yeah. the, the photography in it is unreal. I, lo- I watched a little mini-documentary. I think it was like a 30-minute documentary that came with the Criterion Blu-ray. Um, oh, which I should mention, this was one of the ones I picked up on my half on the half-off sale. Um, but anyway, so David Finch, David Fincher and, um, Christopher Nolan both cited Days of Heaven as, like, big influences when they first saw it, just being like, damn, this is amazing, like, who knew movies could look so great? Um, but I like Tree of Life quite a bit. Um, Chris, this is right up your alley. Tree of Life? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you'd love it, dude. Is it better than Sea of Trees? Oh, yeah, way better than Sea of Trees. That kind of turned me off on movies that have tree in the title. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, weird list you're keeping. <laughs> actually, I can't. I don't think you'd like it, Chris. It basically plays as like a two-and-a-half-hour montage, more or less, where it's like a very, very loose 
narrative structure. And then to even say it has a narrative structure is kind of stretch. It's kind of a stretch, but it's more than some than some films. Um, a more of a narrative structure than twenty four frames, say. But purpose. But there you go. But no, I like. So I'm just on this kick right now when like a film has like sort of operatic classical music. I'm hooked. I think it's amazing. Um, and this has that, and it's beautiful. Um, some of the imagery for like the creation of the universe, I think, is amazing. And they created that with practical effects too. Where they like, I think for like three months, some of the visual effects people like rented out this warehouse and just started experimenting with different chemicals and seeing what happened when you mix certain things together and seeing what it looks like and um, what they they spent like a very long time getting all these things and like figuring out what they like so that when you filmed it, it kind of had like this cosmic effect to it. Um, but it's a very interesting exploration of sort of uh, nature versus nurture where uh, Brad Pitt plays the father of this little family in Waco, Texas. Jessica Chastain plays the mother. Um, and Brad Pitt sort of represents like the nature side of things where um, he believes that you only get through off the merit of like your hard work and some of the most successful people, the hardest working people. Um, but there's like this interesting counterbalance in the movie where he is working incredibly hard, but doesn't see the results in his life that he feels like he should. And Jessica Chastain plays sort of the nurtured character where she, she, like, she kind of feels that like her style of raising people is you show them love, show them support, give them like this comforting environment to be around and that'll blossom and like that'll like, bloom something. Um, so the story kind of revolves around this guy named Jack, who's played by Sean Penn, and he's kind of reflecting back on his life as a child and just seeing how, like, the influence of his father on him, recognizing the influence of his mother on him, and sort of just kind of wondering, like, what your place is in the world. Um, there's a lot of amazing visuals in it, of uh, just very long beach scenes where... Um, just some of the sim, the Emmanuel Lubezki's cinematography just looks fucking beautiful. Like so beautiful in fact that just certain scenes on like on the screen with like the music almost brought tears to my eye. Almost like that beautiful looking. Pussy, pussy, fuck bitch, fuck crying at movies. The only movie I ever cried during, dude, is fucking Infinity War when Thanos snaps. <laughs> Oh, no. gone. Oh, what Tony Stark said, I am Iron Man. Oh, fucking beautiful. Only movie I ever cried at was Inside Out. And it wasn't a cry, it was you one tear. I Out? shed one tear, dude. What are you, a six year old girl? I used to have an imaginary friend, Bing Bong. Oh, Bing Bong. <laughs> it is easier for me to document the movies I have not cried during. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking, of, that's that's a great segue because uh, I actually rewatched uh, after I watched Sawdust and Tinsel. I watched the Florida Project today, and that was a movie that I was definitely in tears in the first time I saw it in theaters. I need. I've been waiting to rewatch that for a, a little bit now. It's my uh, third 
rewatch, I think, and it still holds up quite a lot. I just remember liking the cinematography quite a bit and just love the use of colors, like capturing the Florida landscape and some of the cityscape in it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm very anxiously awaiting what Sean Baker's going to do next because everything has been a home run so far. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what he does. Um, anybody got anything else to talk about? You don't want to get into Snap to Key New York, Zach? Nope. I will say that is a perfect movie, and every time I see anything with Philip Seymour Hoffman, it just makes my heart ache because he. I think of how great he would have been as like an old guy actor, like mm. like if he had lived to be into you know seventies and stuff, it would have been unstoppable. Yeah, it would have been pretty awesome. To think his last movie was Hunger Games. Think of how many more we could have had. I don't think about how many more Hunger Games there could have been if he hadn't died. It also hurts me a lot that there is no that there was no role for him in Inherent Vice. You know, the thought I mean, I think that the master was you know, the best performance ever and everything, but the thought that, you know, of there being Paul Thomas Anderson movies without Philip Seymour Hoffman is certainly uh certainly heartbreaking. Yeah, I feel like he could have easily played Mickey Wolfman. I think I would have liked to have seen him in that role. Yeah, but Josh Brolin was also so dynamite. Wait, 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 wait. That's the wait, not wait. I thought Wolf Mickey Wolfman was the real estate guy. Oh, I guess I I guess I was forgetting. Oh, that's Bigfoot Bjornsson is Josh Brolin. <laughs> yeah, no, all the all the real estate guy who gets um who gets put in the asylum. Yeah, I thought that could have been great for Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I think so, too. Your advice, but Philip Seymour Hoffman plays <laughs> Shasta <Fey. laughs> He plays Shasta Faye. <clears throat> I think I would have loved to have seen Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, Joaquin Phoenix slap his bare ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew, anything else to quickly talk mention before we wrap her up here? Uh, so... I would definitely want people to check out. Uh, so I do photography. I've mentioned this last time I was on uh, the podcast. You can check that out on my Instagram at at, at North by Downey's Photo. I am releasing a photo book in September called "Do You Have a Room with a Better View?" I'm self-publishing it. It's going to be 84 pages of black and white portraits, and you know I'm really excited about it because I've been working at a lot. It's causing me a lot of stress as I put it together, but I think it's going to be fun. And that's always been a dream of mine to have a coffee table book of my photos. And so that's exactly what this is going to be. Is that title inspired at all by Kurt Vonnegut? So that title is actually inspired by, uh, by an essay by, and apologies to the dead if I mispronounced the last name, but David Washnarowicz, who was this uh, was this great artist from New York back in the 80s in the same sort of scene as Keith Haring and Robert Maplethorpe and all those, where he was both a filmmaker, a visual artist of, you know, paintings and collages and things, and also was a great essayist and writer. He was also a gay man who contracted AIDS and then 
uh, later died of it. And after he was diagnosed with AIDS, his work became way more political and angry. And if you've ever seen the, if you've ever seen the photo uh, of a person, it's behind them with a denim jacket and it says, if I die of AIDS, forget burial, toss my body on the steps of the FDA. That's him wearing the jacket. And so that's kind of the reference most people do. But his essay from this book called Closer to the Knives. And in this particular one, I can't remember the title of it at the moment, but he talks about basically, you know, consumerism and people's people's general distaste and not being able to you know get on with their daily lives and at the end of the at the end of the essay and i'm paraphrasing the sign he says there's a reason why in every travel brochure there's one phrase translated in every language do you have a room with a better view and so mm. that, that sort of sense of you know, not being complacent of where you are and longing for different things is a theme that kind of goes throughout the photo book. And so when I read that essay, it had, when I read that final line, it kind of clicked right then and there, where it's like, this is exactly what I was feeling inside. And, you know, there are a few, there are very few other artists I would like to tribute other than, you know, someone as, you know, a someone as aggressive and open as him. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely pick that up. That sounds awesome. I need a book. I need a coffee table. I need a coffee table book. Coffee, t- coffee table books are my that. favorite thing on the planet. Can't beat them. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, I think that about wraps us up here. Um, Thanks for downloading. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for stopping by for another week. Andrew, thank you so much for being on here. Always a pleasure. It was a pleasure to have you on here. Always great conversation when you're around. Thanks for me being on the show. Yeah, so we hope you stop You're short. one of the fucking co-hosts, <laughs> bud. Uh, any thoughts on what we might be reviewing next week? What's the big release? I'm not even sure. Let's look here. Let's just Let's just... Keep the viewer in suspense right now. I know The Farewell is something I'd like to check out. Oh, I think the big release might be Scary Stories Tell in the Dark. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a no for me, bud. It's Guillermo. Uh, when does... Oh, shit. I think 40, 47 meters down, uncaged. That's, oh, that's, no. that's later. That's August 16th, I'm pretty sure. That's not Friday, though. Oh, shit, you're right. That's going to be a no for me, though, bud. The farewell opens uh, this week at Railroad Square. It does. I don't know if y'all have reviewed that yet, but not yet. Not yet. I will likely end up seeing it this week, Thursday, maybe even. Just open up in theaters around me. Yeah, I don't know. We can figure something out. I don't think. I think the big release is Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Yeah. So we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, well, we'll figure something out, and when we know, you'll know. Who is it? Um, her smell. Elizabeth Moss? Yeah, she's in a movie called The Kitchen. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm out on that one. <laughs> she's holding a gun in the picture. Oh, hell yeah. Some McCarthy's in it, too. Oh, nope. Now you know it's Nope. <laughs>
Oh, come on, you guys are all uh, butter performance and freaking Can You Forgive Me Now or whatever. No, I, 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 I'm on record that said it is so amazingly average that it's forgettable. When are we going to get to see the Nightingale? That comes out pretty soon, doesn't it? Sorry, what, something. Oh, is it? I have not out near me. Guess I haven't seen it anywhere. I don't know, we'll figure something out. But until then, thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Robinson, heaven holds a place for those who pray.